0: On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture.
1: Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books.
0: If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your
1: books, we recommend and use audible.com.
0: It's great and the catalog is huge. All
1: right. So if you're listening to this, you are online.
0: Maybe you're very
1: online. You probably have a website or thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites and the single best host for serious WordPress, is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and
0: click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more.
1: Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good right. job there. Yeah, Yeah. That, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it.
0: We're back in the dark room. Very special dark room. And for people who are maybe joining us for the first time, normally what a dark room means is we're talking about a subject we've covered in depth. We're doing kind of a breakout session with a friend, a guest, an expert. Um, in this case, it's all three. Um, but this time, instead of covering a subject we've already talked about, I'm thinking of this as a dark room prequel. This is, this is, yeah, Kevin's Kevin's got it.
1: <laughs> this is the darkest room. All right. Yeah. So typically dark rooms follow core subjects. Because of our rule, we always wait a year and a day uh, after somebody passes away before we mm-hmm. even dare to cover them. Yeah. However, we have planned to do a Blood Meridian book club event for a while now, before mm-hmm. the great Cormac McCarthy passed away. yeah, we We thought, why don't we bring one of the go-to folks uh, in terms of Cormac, all things Cormac, onto the pod. He actually came to us Mm. and said, let's go. And I know both Brad and I are are really wondering one thing about the great novel, Blood Meridian. And I, I think we have the man who's up for the task, who's ready to answer this question. With us, the great Aaron Gwynn is going to help us determine or understand or try to grok what the judge is the judge of. Aaron, welcome (laughs) to the darkest of the dark rooms. No small task. You have a substack devoted entirely to Blood Meridian. Where do you want to begin? Blood Meridian
2: substack, if you're interested. Uh, Follow me over on Twitter at American Gwen and get to it that way. Um, Tell you what, if if you and Brad don't mind, let's hop into the
1: judge's first appearance in the novel. And and I'll read it. Fair fair (laughs) enough. What the hell is Blood Meridian? Hmm. Why are people who have no business talking about Blood Meridian talking about Blood Meridian right now? why do we have any business talking about blood meridian why should people care why would we make an exception the three of us brad mm, and i right. the hosts you are friend and frequent guest why would we make an exception here hmm. that's great so let's start there and then
2: we'll get to the judge blood meridian is a very it's the most famous book that has not been widely famous Mm -hmm. Blood Meridian, uh, as long as I can remember it, being around English departments has been whispered at first in hallways and corridors, has been a password between people, and then became a legend, and then became a standard set in the same breath with Moby Dick and Absalom Absalom and As I Lay Dying. And uh, uh, Invisible Man and Beloved is one of the books. If it's not the great American novel, like Ed Tom Bell says, no country for old men, it'll do till the great American novel gets here. (laughs) I like that. So I read it for the first time, 1999. The great Brian Evanson, fiction writer, was teaching a class, um, uh, The Fiction of Violence, that summer. And he was teaching Blood Meridian, and he and he kept saying, "Man, you got to read this." I wasn't in the class. It's a friend of mine He's like, you've "Got to read this book," and he just thought it was very, very, very special. Um, and it is. Uh, in 2005, editors, literary agents, and authors in New York City and bigwigs in publishing were polled as to the most um, significant work of fiction. I forget what they said the past the past 25 years or the past 50 years. And so no, they unanimously uh, picked Beloved as number one. And then number two, Blood Meridian was tied with Don DeLillo's Underworld. So those three books have been massively, massively read, massively influential. Blood Meridian has become so incredibly influential that people are influenced by it who have never read of it, never read it or heard of Cormac McCarthy. So yeah. the video games Dead Red Redemption yeah. and Dead Red Redemption 2, played by millions of people, right, oh. were directly influenced, were brought into being
1: because yeah, of the yeah it's red dead redemption but yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i'm sorry
0: yeah yeah, yeah. 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 100% it's, all right. yeah. it's
2: yeah so it has it has influenced so uh, much fiction so much television so many video games so many films right that mm-hmm. it's launched people's careers that that never reference it so it, <laughs> uh, it has been this locus of of cultural and artistic power and is also the most violent piece of media that I believe the most violent piece of media that has ever existed.
1: It's extraordinarily violent. Uh, and and yet somehow it also feels like a deeply spiritual book. It it has it's a book that that genuinely feels like more than a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels somehow like more than a novel. Uh, and I, I don't think I'm overhyping it. I, I was rereading it here recently in preparation for this episode. And it is truly staggering. You can't say enough about it, but we're going to try. Gonna try <laughs> gonna All try. right. Now
2: yeah. that, now that I, I love what you say there, Kevin, about a book that seems to be more than a book. And there, there are these, there are tons of great novels and memoirs, biographies, works of history in American literature, poetry, screenplays, plays, etc. There are a handful of books that feel like the characters live beyond the page. There are a handful of books that that people are always reading. They finish yeah. it, they start it over again. Moby Dick is a book like that. When I yeah. interviewed uh, Colson Whitehead earlier this year, he said that he's his quote was, I am always reading Moby Dick. I've read <laughs> nice. it before, but he just keeps it around. He yeah. says, if I have insomnia, I get up in the middle of the night. I'll read a couple of chapters. Day, right. Yeah. So people have there is a certain kind of book people have that relationship with, and Blood Meridian is that kind of obsessional, foundational work.
1: Right, yeah. and I think that statement, and I don't know if he meant it in this clever way, but the way I would you know read that is that. Or take that to mean is that if it's anything like the way it's felt for me rereading Blood Meridian, you put the book down at the end of the night, you wake up the next day, you're driving along the road, and you're still reading the book. It has, and I think particularly, probably as an American living in the West or from the West, the center Mm -hmm. of the country. Wherever you live in America, really, it is it is a deeply, deeply American novel. It is deeply about America. America. I, I I think you could you could do a reading purely about that. The whole the entire okay. thing is a metaphor for the American experiment, the American project. The, you could very easily do a PhD saying the kid is America, and this is what is meant by that. And you may be right, you may be wrong. <laughs> right, that's part of the genius of it. I taught it a year ago in a, in a contemporary
2: fiction class and we started it and it's all, you know, I've taught it for, since 2001. So I've been teaching it over 20 years in college classrooms and big lecture class. We start talking about Blood Meridian, the opening pages. And, you know, some people are kind of like, oh my gosh, you know, it's the darkness, it's, you know, it's too much. And this one young man in front, Matthew, if you're listening, you're awesome. He said, you can walk outside and walk down to the street and feel this on the street. Mm, Yeah. And I'm like, oh, man, what do you mean? That's like this presence, this darkness, this violence, you can feel it. And I'm like,
3: this this
2: guy gets it. This young man gets it. You can. If you're tuned in, right? If you put down your fucking latte,
1: Mm -hmm. right? Yep, if you put down your yep, put down your copy of *Fixiones*. Yeah. And, <laughs> the, the, you have that too. You could have that too. You have that mm-hmm. right next to your copy of Blood Meridian mm-hmm. and they talk mm-hmm. to each other for sure they do. 100% and and Aaron if you and if if you have to explain that to somebody that's like explaining jazz to somebody.
3: Mm. I can't,
1: mm-hmm. it can't
0: explain it. Uh but yeah. it's there. I I, mean, I was I, I, I ahead of this, I, you know, I I've read Blood Meridian at least three times all the way through, and I think maybe four. And so ahead of this, you know, I, I kind of recognized, well, hey, I'm not going to be able to read the whole novel. I, I My copy is very marked up. So I went through and read particular passages that I had sort of noted to myself before. But then I just decided I was going to read two chapters just randomly, literally just flip through the first time I hit a full chapter. I'm just going to read that chapter. and. It's funny because I read it and I was like, oh, this is the fa- my favorite chapter of a book I've ever read. <laughs> and Like, is it even the best chapter in the book? I don't even know, honestly. But I remember reading that last night, and putting that down and just thinking like, as a writer, thinking like, Jesus, I got to set my game up, man. Like, how the fuck, how, like, if this is out there, like, what's even, and, and that, I don't say this in a dispirited way because I, I'm up for a challenge. But as a writer, I read that and I'm like, God damn, what am I going to (laughs) do? This is the effect. This is the effect that it has on fiction
2: writers. And I don't think, like, I've heard people say this is gendered and that sort of, I don't buy that. I know a bunch of women novelists, women nonfiction writers, particularly when McCarthy passed. Women hosting the great uh, Maggie Doherty, who writes for The New Republic. She, R.I.P., this is why I started writing
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: I started writing because so I don't think it's like a man McCarthy's a man's writer okay maybe but he's beloved by right. human readers um yeah yeah so the yeah, challenge then it makes you feel as a writer you're like I gotta up my game
0: yeah. Yeah. And it's it, so and honestly, funny. and it did for me as uh, developing as a writer. And I still have a lot of development to do, but like early on, when I think I started reading McCarthy around 2006, um, ambitiously writing my own stuff, and was like, oh, there are actually levels to this game that I didn't even quite recognize. Like I, I've been playing around. Um, there's like a whole nother, and and, and, and not to try and co- And then the challenge is. How do I try to do this without cop like copying him, right, or parodying him, or being obviously influenced in every sentence by him? And that's also a challenge. But yeah, hmm.
1: yeah, he's he's also it's also very very funny. It's extraordinarily bloody, but there's a great deal of humor, gallows humor, and even little yeah. cheeky meta jokes. Uh, you can talk about the fact that one of the characters' names is Webster. And you mm-hmm. should probably have your dic- dictionary open when you're reading this <laughs> novel. Right, right, I right. think that's a little bit of an amusing, uh, sort of almost Brechtian wink. It could, mm-hmm. maybe it's not, right? That's the other thing. Like, there's enough in here that it's going to be a Rorschach and it's going to meet you where you are, and you're going to have your own i mean this is true of of everything but this works on like brad said on uh something of a different level i'm a i'm a dramatist and the dramaturgy of this the way the scenes work there is a cinematic quality to it uh and typically if you were to say that of a novel it might be a be pejorative not in this case
0: no Uh, see see this is this is McCarthy, okay. When well you talk about the 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 tradition or the question of the or the dialogue about the great American novel, um, Blood Meridian or, or M- McCarthy's Oove generally is the first participant in that conversation to me that is clearly inspired by cinema. Uh, you have people like David Foster Walls and Don DeLillo um, and others who are. Um, part of the sort of post cinematic uh you, you know with they they exist in a universe where cinema has been around for a long time but they're not as obviously influenced by by cinema as I think McCarthy is and you see this more maybe in some of his other novels than you do actually in blood meridian um but they're not uh to me, they're consciously aware of that rather than um, I've just seen a lot of movies and haven't written any book, read many books, and I'm trying to write a novel. It's not that it's no, it's... it's it's this is actually part of this is part of the, the source material that he's drawing from to create these things. Yeah.
2: And not only is it a Western itself, it is this story that you can fully inhabit um, as a reader. John Gardner calls this. The vivid and continuous dream of fiction, mm. right? That as a reader, you enter the great. We all know that experience, right? I mean, mm. I, I don't care what Lord of the Rings movie or TV series they make; it can be all. It can all be fine. That mm. stuff is never going to be as good as the movie in my head. The vivid and continuous dream, right? The, the book. So, mean.
1: It's never going to yeah. be as good as the book.
2: That's right. right. And this and the dream. That the book creates in your mind as you read that fluid, vivid, continuous dream. So, not only is Blood Meridian that, it is also formatted like books were in the 1850s. It is a pastiche, yeah. right? With the headnotes. Yeah. This was a common uh, uh, top, topographical, topographical, sorry thing that uh publishers did authors did um in the 1840s 1870s. yeah and
0: it's it's interesting so I, I i've looked a little bit into that it it's not it's a apparently one of the terms for this is a gloss um and it's not um it's sort of summary um but it's almost like you might describe it as like bullet pointed summary it's right. not telling you exactly it's like the it's like happened. the beats of the
1: chap of the chapter
0: Mm-hmm. Right? like if yeah. you
1: were if you were uh, writing it, you might go, okay, this is d- 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 it's your beats as you're moving yeah. the chapter from A to Z, but yeah, 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 without giving it away,
2: yeah, because McCarthy was writing this because he published this in 1985 as opposed to 1885, he messes with you even in the those head notes. Right. Mm-hmm. So just one particular instance, a chapter, you have the head note, the washerwomen at the Ford. And when you get to that moment, you find women who have been scalped and are dead in a river.
0: <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. There's almost a, there's almost. Yeah, and, and that is. I, and we may you don't have to dig into it. That is almost like a fourth wall breaking moment That's right. Doing that, That's right. there, there is a like this. This story is going to break through any kind of conventional structure that you're trying to put around it. Yeah.
1: Now, Brad, do we have anything special planned for the after dark for Patreon? Patreon.com/slash Art of Dark Pod. We're going to go as long as it takes with the great Aaron Gwynn here mm-hmm. to get his insights into this novel. But we're also going to make some extra time for Patreon.
0: Well, be part I have a couple of things that I'd like to talk about. We'll see what we get to in this. There's, there's a couple of things I definitely want to hit and I think makes sense maybe to save more for the After Dark. Aaron Gwynn not only is the Blood Meridian, he's the man, the Blood Meridian guy. He's who you go to when you want to know more about Blood Meridian. He's also a man who shares a deep well of wisdom about publishing and about writing. And I want to talk in the After Dark about if Cormac McCarthy had been born in 1980 would he have a career would blood meridian if it landed on the desk of some agent somewhere in in 2015 rather than 1985 would it have got seen the, would it have ended up at a Barnes and noble end cap that's. I would just want to figure out, and I'm. I don't have an opinion necessarily, but I'm. I'm curious what you think. Curious what Aaron thinks. I'm curious what I think. Uh, so that's that's patreoncom We'll do that. On we've got the other after stuff arc. too. Yeah.
2: yeah. As so- a tease, as a tease to that, Blood Meridian was remaindered. If McCarthy was virtually unknown. He was known mm-hmm. by writers, but none of his none of his books sold more than. Um, five thousand copies. Blood Meridian. Hey, that's
0: pretty and good. That's pretty
2: good these days. Pretty good these days. <laughs> Blood Meridian <laughs> is published. It didn't sell through its print run of fifteen hundred. Wow! It so it didn't sell through the print run. Was remaindered and went out of print.
1: What do wow. those first editions go for now? Do we know?
2: I held one at Lemuria Books in Jackson, Mississippi in their rare books room when I was on tour there in 2004. And that was at the time and it was going for $5,000. should
0: have bought now, that.
2: That's, I should have bought it.
0: we didn't have invent it. an investment for sure. I
2: should have bought it. Now, yeah. I have no idea what a first edition, you know, fine copy. There's no telling. Particularly. I,
1: little, yeah. I right now that he's passed and, and by the way, we need it. I mean rest in pre- uh, peace to a great one. I mean I oh, said dude, we're this doing we're doing yeah. this
0: because like it's the end of an
1: era in a certain way. It's like the end and, of an era. Yeah. And we yeah. will be coming back next year with the proper Cormac mm-hmm. Core episode most probably with Aaron uh, tagging along joining mm-hmm. us uh For that and uh, tagging along, I make it. I make it sound like you're <laughs> like you're. <laughs> <I think. laughs> no, we will have uh, Aaron on for that for sure. um But I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again on this podcast. Uh, I I don't. We don't tep- typically get sentimental on this this pod, but we are American writers living in the world today, circa 2023. Depending on how much you care for the arts and letters. How highly you rank the arts and literature. And we rank mm-hmm. them very highly on Art of Darkness. Sure. Yeah. We not only lost probably our greatest living writer, one of the very short list at, at the top, we may have lost the greatest living American. Certainly top 10 mm-hmm. to 20, mm-hmm. whatever field you era. care about. Yeah. End of an era. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, I know sometimes people can get a little turned off by overhype. It's too much. Uh, And so let me just hedge and say, it's a hundred percent, absolutely worth every, every single bit of hype as somebody who uh, is a literature respecter Uh, it's picking it back up again. It's just, it's remarkable. In any case, Aaron, Mm -hmm.
2: I have, I have you a price on a first edition blood Meridian now. Oh, what's that? Forty
0: thousand dollars. Oh could have made a cool thirty-five grand on that you bad he, boy. You think he's we selling it monitor. here? I don't yeah. think hey, so. Invest
1: yeah. in literature, people. Yeah. That's <laughs> better returns than uh dude, C didn't
0: make that much money on it yeah. for a couple yeah. decades, probably. So
1: now Aaron, yeah. you you just had a piece come out today. Uh was it in the spectator? In
2: the in spectator uh uh, web edition and and print um and the uh and the print issue is the August issue and this is just like letting people know hey um by the way I should uh, add that the day McCarthy um passed blood Meridian went to number eight out of all books on Amazon
0: all books so that's against like Ten ways to unf your life. Like, that's right. Yeah, right. Number eight.
2: Number eight. So for the first time, Blood Meridian became a New York Times paperback bestseller. Oh man, that's the best. So <laughs> my piece was like, okay, folks, you people who have heard of Cormac McCarthy and didn't pull the trigger till you heard he died, you've so you've decided to get a copy of Blood Meridian delivered to your front door. <laughs> Word. What are you in for? What's uh... live,
1: laugh, scalp?
2: Yeah. 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 So do we want to do we want to dive into the judge the first time we see him?
0: Yeah, yeah. let's do
1: that. You've been let's waiting patiently and so has the audience.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we've just been. Yeah. No, this is great. Let's do it.
1: The
2: Reverend Green had been playing to a full house daily as long as the rain had been falling and the rain had been falling for two weeks. When the kid ducked into the ratty canvas tent, there was standing room along the walls, a place or two, and such a heady reek of the wet and bathless that they themselves would sally forth into the downpour now and again for fresh air before the rain drove them in. He stood with others of his kind along the back wall. The only thing that might've distinguished him in that crowd was that he was not armed. Neighbors? said the reverend. He couldn't stare out of these here hell, hell, hell holes right here in Nacogdoches. I said to him, I said, you gonna take the son of God in there with you? And he said, oh no, no, I ain't. And I said, do you know that he said I will follow you always even under the end of the road? Well, he said, I ain't asking nobody to go nowheres. And I said, neighbor, you don't need to ask. He's gonna be with there whether you'd stick every step ever, whether you ask it or not. I said, neighbor, you can't get shed of him. Now, are you gonna take him, him, into that hell hole yonder? You ever see such a place for rain? The kid had been watching the Reverend. He turned to the man who spoke. He wore long mustaches after the fashion of teamsters, and he wore a wide brim hat with a low round crown. He was slightly wall eyed and he was watching the kid earnestly as if he'd know his opinion about the rain. I just got here, said the kid. Will it be tall I ever seen? The kid nodded. An enormous man dressed in an oilcloth slicker had entered the tent and removed his hat. He was bald as a stone. And he had no trace of beard and he had no brows to his eyes, nor lashes to them. He was close on to seven feet in height and he stood smoking a cigar, even in this nomadic house of God. And he seemed to have removed his hat only to chase the rain from it. For now he put it on again. The Reverend had stopped the sermon altogether. There was no sound in the tent. All watched the man. He adjusted the hat and then pushed his way forward as far as the crateboard pulpit where the Reverend stood. And there he turned to address the Reverend's congregation. His face was serene and strangely childlike. His hands were small. He held them out. Ladies and gentlemen, I feel it my duty to inform you that the man holding this revival is an imposter. He holds no papers of divinity from any institution recognized or improvised. He is altogether devoid of the least qualification to the office he has usurped and is only committed to memory a few passages from the good book for the purpose of lending to his fraudulent sermon some faint flavor of the piety he despises. In truth, The gentleman standing here before you posing as a minister of the Lord is not only totally illiterate, but is also wanted by the law in the states of Tennessee, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Arkansas. Oh, God, cried the reverend, lies, lies. He began reading feverishly from his open Bible. On a variety of charges, the most recent of which involved a girl of 11 years, I said 11. Who he had come to in trust, and whom he was surprised in the act of violating, while actually clothed in the livery of his god. A moan swept through the crowd. A lady sank to her knees. This is him, cried the Reverend, sobbing. This is him! The devil! Here he stands! Let's hang the turd! crawled, called an ugly thug from the gallery to the rear. Not three weeks before this, he was run out of Fort Smith, Arkansas for having Congress with a goat. Yes, lady, that is what I said, goat. Well, damn my eyes if I won't shoot the son of a bitch, said a man rising at the far side of the tent and drawing a pistol from his boot, he leveled it and fired. The young teamster instantly produced a knife from his clothing and unseen the tent and stepped outside into the rain. The kid followed. They ducked low and ran across the mud toward the hotel. Already gunfire was general within the tent and a dozen exits had been hacked through the canvas walls and people were pouring out, women screaming, folks stumbling, folks trampled underfoot. The bald headed man was already at the bar when they entered. On the polished wood before him were two hats and a double handful of coins. He raised his glass, but not to them. They stood up to the bar and ordered whiskeys, and the kid laid his money down, but the barman pushed it back with his thumb and nodded. His hair's on the judge, he said. They drank. The teamster set his glass down and looked at the kid, or he seemed to you couldn't be sure of his gaze. The kid looked down the bar to where the judge stood. The bar was that tall, not every man could get his elbows up on it, but it came just to the judge's waist. And he stood with his hands placed flatwise on the wood, leaning slightly as if about to give another address. By now, men were piling through the doorway, bleeding, covered in mud, cursing. They gathered about the judge. A posse was being drawn to pursue the preacher. Judge, how did you have uh, the goods on that no account? Goods, said the judge, when you was in Fort Smith. Fort Smith? Where did you know him to know all that stuff on him? You mean the Reverend Green? Yes, sir. I reckon you was in Fort Smith before you come out here. I was never in Fort Smith in my life. Doubt that he was. They looked from one to the other. Well, where was it you run up on him? I never laid eyes on the man before today. Never even heard of him. He raised his glass and drank. There was a strange silence in the room. The men looked like mud effigies. Finally, someone began to laugh. Then another. Soon they were all laughing together. Someone bought the judge a drink.
0: <laughs> oh great scene great le- well read that was exceptional thank you aaron oh, thank, you. thank you yeah so many little details in there i mean are i i am always struck how- by well go ahead kevin look you you have something to say how does he how does he get away in this
1: novel with creating a character in the judge who feels like a collective hallucination and yet doesn't suffer from the sophomoric, the typical sophomoric uh, workshop judgment that you would levy against somebody who does that. a larger than life character, <laughs> mythic feeling, and yet fully present. And by the end of the novel, you don't you don't say oh, this is just corny. It's just a dream in the end And like how does it how is that accomplished? What does it all mean? Help me, Aaron. I'm drowning.
2: <laughs> I think that it has something to do with the Shakespearean breath of life that McCarthy breathes into the judge. I think that we, even if we don't think about it consciously, we feel the channeling of Iago, of Milton, Satan, and of Ahab, the... the the judge's forebears.
1: Oh, but he, he is both Ahab and the whale, isn't he?
2: Yes. He's, <laughs> there's something otherworldly about him. Just yeah. a there's such other- an
1: incredible moment in the novel and it's about midway through which I'll confess is a, is where I am right now in my rereading of it a little a little past midway. Uh where the judge they've they've accomplished their first uh sortie and have collected any number of scalps and they come into one of the mexican cities and are greeted as conquering heroes and he ends up in the, the baths with the other men as they're getting the gory uh, all the blood off of them and he he squats into the bath uh, with his cigar burning uh, pecked away in one of his ears right and he grins and i just as a as a modest artist myself you can uh, you can almost feel McCarthy taking a victory lap as he writes this somehow Mm -hmm. there there's a strange feeling and I know Brad has this question too who the hell is the narrator of this book uh but it just I don't know what it is about that moment where I just it 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 almost feels like the the author somehow being self-satisfied knowing that he's trapped you in his world which is also the world of the judge, which of course is the metaphor within the metaphor for the Gnostic allegory Mm. that blood Meridian is. So the novelist has succeeded in trapping you inside of his dream. And if you're a Gnostic respecter and you believe the Demiurge has us all trapped inside his dream, then Cormac has succeeded in,
0: uh, Ah, well, yes. Mim- if, if mimicking this, if, the demiurge in if his this world. Way. If this world could be created by a lesser God, then it may very well be creatable by anyone else, right? By just, by some guy in America,
1: yeah, mm. in the 80s. Anyway, yeah. Mm. Mm.
2: Deep, deep idea, thoughts. Yeah, the Gnostic idea is an idea of representation. That, that the God that we think in the Judeo-Christian world is Jehovah, is Yahweh, is actually an imposter called the Demiurge. And the Demiurge, Demi-urge uh, has trapped all of us, souls, in physical matter, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. there, there is a spark of divinity from the true God who is beyond the world, right? And maybe in each of us, maybe not, but in some of us, stuff. Sure. And then there are these dark figures who move through the world called Archons, and the Archons try to gobble up those people who have these sparks of divinity. The other sounds, great sounds piece right of, to me.
1: Yep, that tracks. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm yeah, half well, kidding. Yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> and confirm. Right. Yeah, mm. yeah right. it's certainly it is certainly a vibe. The other yeah. uh, great piece of media that is explicitly about this is, of course, Twin Peaks. Uh, mm. is very much about the, the Archons and a In part, you can, yeah. yeah. In in any case, for reference for people.
0: Hmm. Well, and 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 just while we're on the Twin Peaks subject, there is a a tr- there is a sort of sub genre of American literature which seems to be aware that the American continent, the North American continent, is occupied by some sort of uh chthonic uh uh demon, basically, which has uh had its hand at the till of his- of, of history. Um Twin Peaks is one of them, uh Blood Meridian is is is, is potentially one of them. Um uh, uh, Cities of the Red Knight by William S. Burroughs is another. Uh, there are a handful of these, but um, it's an interesting uh, this is this is like a pet interest of mine in the last couple of years. Anyway, so Blood Meridian is like the capstone of this sub sub genre. And it's all it's other things as well. It's not s- simply that.
2: But let me tell a, tell a tale out of school. Mm-hmm. So my buddy Philip Meyer wrote uh, Picador. Uh, which is the arm of uh, Pan MacMillan uh, in the UK. Uh, Philip and I share an agent, uh, Peter Strauss. And um, Peter was an editor at Picador, was McCarthy's editor at Picador, incidentally. Um, And Picador wanted to re-release an issue of Blood Meridian.
0: Oh, he's got it. He's got it on hand. Right. So I've seen this one. That's a, I love That's one of my favorite covers.
2: Philip has uh, the introduction. uh, Philip Meyer, great novel, by the way. The Sun, recommend to everyone who loves uh, Blood Meridian. Fantastic. Um, And also did his uh, MFA at UT Austin, where Brad and Kevin
0: did. Yeah. He was, uh, he graduated a year before us. I think I I hung out with him a time or two. Yeah. Great guy. Yeah.
2: Let's go. So, so Philip wrote this introduction, and he kicked it back and forth with uh, McCarthy's agent and the Picador editor. I I have that PDF, like right here. And at one point in his introduction, Meyer writes, or I'm sorry, he had written, it seems that McCarthy is using a gnostic idea something like that right this seems gnostic mm-hmm. and mccarthy crossed that out and wrote it is gnostic
0: oh really yeah okay okay it's
1: right there i yeah but i'm glad he's not being coy about it because it really is explicitly
0: that. That. well well I mean, we could spend a a lot of time talking about the trajectory of Gnostic ideas throughout his oeuvre ending in Stella Maris, which is distinctly Gnostic without with even less coy than possible than depending on how you read things, even less coy than Blood Meridian. But it's in there in the road. It's 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 very prominent in the road um, as well. And and. I, I don't see it as much in say the, the, the border trilogy, but I'm sure a close reading would find it. Um, yeah. Well, it's,
2: it is there in uh judge. Uh, I'm not judge. I'm sorry. Sheriff Bell's dream at the end of no country for old men, yes. where yeah. he dreams about the, his father riding through past the mountains, fire and a horn carrying the fire going out and all that dark. Mm. That's, the fire, that's, all that-
0: that's the divine spark. That's the
2: divine spark, right? So, I mean, McCarthy has been thinking about this stuff at least since after Sutri. Mm -hmm. And you see a hint, a hint, a shading of the judge in the final paragraph of Sutri.
0: Mm. Yeah, all right. (laughs) This is great.
2: (laughs) Right? So a beautiful, mournful final paragraph that addresses directly... (laughs) the reader and breaks into first person somewhere in the gray wood by the river is the huntsman and in the brooming corn and in the castellated press of cities his work lies all wears and his hounds tire not i have seen them in a dream slaverous and wild and their eyes crazed with ravening for souls in this world. Fly them. Good Lord. (laughs) Right?
3: So he's been thinking
2: about this at least since Sutri. Yeah. Yeah. uh, And by this, I mean the Gnostic trajectory. Right. Right.
1: Right. And this isn't a uh, podcast about Gnosticism, but i am on the wikipedia and just very briefly the etymology of the word of course is that gnosis refers to knowledge based on personal experience or perception in a religious context gnosis is mystical or esoteric knowledge based on direct participation with the divine in most gnostic systems the sufficient cause of salvation is this knowledge of or acquaintance with the divine yeah. And we could go well, on for a well.
0: Long let me time. let me speak. This is yeah. I've spent a lot of time thinking and write, reading about Gnosticism. Yeah. Let me just append it, that. It, it's also yeah. heresy. But well. go on. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Um, so <laughs> um, yeah,
3: it uh, said.
0: yeah. So so I mean, there there are other aspects to think about this. Gnosticism refers to a broad range of different sects of. Most people generally consider it um, heretical Christianity, early forms of Christianity. It, you think of Christianity as evolving school of thought in which you've got these branched out groups that are heretical and to some degree were stamped out. Um, the Particularly what McCarthy is occupying appar- apparently or seems to be with works like Blood Meridian falls a little bit more cl- uh, clearly into the Manichaean camp and wow. the manichaeans were obsessed with notions of good and evil but they also were con- very much concerned with the fact that physical matter had a demonic undercurrent to it this stuff was all built as a ex- as a by the demiurge in order to trap you and force you to forget your divinity right and so the gnostic concept was like hey wake up This isn't everything there is what you should be trying to do is trying to figure out how to bring your spark back to God, um, which isn't anywhere around around these parts. (laughs) Right. Um, So there are schools of thought within there are schools uh, sex or there were that would be considered Gnostic whose belief systems don't quite square exactly with that. And there are undercurrents of Gnosticism in actually, it turns out, all religious systems um, that have any any school of thought within a religious system that believes it has um, found a way to access direct experience with the the divine is technically a form of Gnosticism. So you could be a Gnostic Hindu. You could be a Gnostic Buddhist. Um, it, It just it. In when we're talking about it, we're we're actually thinking about a sliver of Gnosticism, generally considered Manichaeanism or Valentinism. Um, the Essenes were sort of in this camp as well. But um a primary so so oftentimes the sort of meme level is like the Gnostics think the world is evil, which is true enough for our conversation. Yeah.
2: That's great, Brad. Yeah. Like that, that breakdown, I think, is really helpful. Mm-hmm. I've I've read um Elaine Pagel's uh The Gospel of Thomas, mm-hmm. which gives the yep. Gnostic ideas, unpacks one of the Gnostic quote not I've read her the Gnostic Gospels, which yep. is quite I need to read it again before I said anything whatsoever about it. But it's fascinating. I think I got more out of your 30 second to a minute <laughs> breakdown that I have oh,
3: um,
2: so many pages I've read. So that's that's fantastic. I think yeah. that um it well, it's it's easy to understand why Kevin's reaction was the reaction of the church that that it, this is heretical because this is dangerous stuff. It is. I mean this is dangerous stuff, especially if you're gonna say like, oh you know you're not um you weren't just made by God the Father you're made
3: of God the Father.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and here's here's another thing too about especially the, the Christian Gnostic sects like the, Manichae, the the Manichaeans and others. One thing that they would say is they would take a text like the Bible and they would say, here's how to actually read it. <laughs> and wow. it's not that they don't think, say, the story of Genesis was, um, was somehow divinely inspired. They think there is a... They're 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 interpreters, they're literary theorists. They say there's a story below the story that is the real story, right? Yeah. Not saying that's necessarily true, but you can you can boil us down and we can get off the Gnosticism thing in a little bit. But there's you know, there are were Gnostic sects that believed the serpent in the Garden of Eden was the hero.
1: Very interesting. Right. Right. That's gonna cause a little bit of uh yeah. trouble when you <laughs> when you meet pro- when you meet with the bishop. That's problematic. Yeah. Uh <laughs> yeah. I
0: I I'm reading about.
1: I'm reading about the Cathars. Yeah, canceled. excommunicated. Mm-hmm. Um it, are the Cathars similar to the Manicheans spread? They're they
0: definitely there's there's major overlap. Yeah, the Cathars are in that the 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 physical reality is evil school. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean well, it, here's Yeah, go ahead.
1: Go ahead no, please, please. No, no, I mean it's just uh, the the Catharism Wikipedia just goes so hard; it's just super metal, right? So here's just like random other beliefs, and the Cathars were a Gnostic sect that I believe were were wiped
0: out. Yeah, um, and yeah, the Albigensian Crusade. Correct. Here's why I think the
2: judge works because <laughs> it, it invites the kind of speculation and and unpacking of philosophy. That we're doing right here.
3: Mm-hmm. This
2: character invites that. At the same time, he is grounded in a seven-foot hairless albino with alopecia, who is who is competent, an orator, uh expert in violence, cultured, the all-around, the all-around man, yeah. plus evil right so he's anchored in a real presence and yeah. physicality right so you have that doubleness you have the the physical surface of the judge the physical attributes of the judge combined with well is this like a manichaean thing is this like a gnostic thing is what's the right so you have both things abutting and creating this weird tension i don't know if you guys have ever known it's a very particular type, man. A guy who's six, eight, or over moving through the world is a different kind of person mm-hmm. and is interacting with people in a different way. It's yeah. very interesting to watch. There was a mm. World Cup some years ago. There was a referee, this guy may be famous for all I know, who was about seven feet tall, bald, and just a presence. And he commanded that entire space. And like other referees, you know, there's always a kind of thing. Players and referees are kind of argumentative. There was none of that with this. dude. <laughs> yeah, he's just. I, there's something about. And by the way, I'm five eight, so mm. I'm not like saying this like, oh, respect the big. I'm just right. saying, hey.
0: Oh no! If you're that size, it's 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 something. I've I've encountered a few of these people of that size. Uh, maybe not even a few. Maybe a couple. And yeah. it is oof. This guy is. If you know, if we were in some kind of uh an era of uh if we were in an era where there weren't handguns this guy would be able to do whatever he wanted (laughs)
2: yeah yeah Yeah. in an era when when a tall man was five foot nine
1: right right
2: Most men were like five six five five
1: they say um God made man the same Sam Colt made made them equal
3: <laughs> yeah
2: that's right. that's
1: yeah right. for yeah. something like that uh yeah. you know it, it it does strike me of course these uh Christological uh mm. resonances are all of course intentional uh I, and again I I don't want to uh, border too much on the heretical but yeah. the more I think about the question I put to you Aaron, about how this character sits in that place well it's clearly a Christ-like place it's like a superimposition of both things man and God the jo- the judge is some sort of perversion of that uh or or inversion of that um and it's eerie
0: <laughs> yeah can the I read is- a, uh, can I read a little bit there's a great um there's a great um, essay. Uh, oh, did I not include the name? Oh, I have it here. The striking the fire out of the rock Gnostic theology in Cormac McCarthy's blood meridian. Let me just read just a little bit just to put this into some context or, or add some context, I should say. Quote, whether an archon of judgment, an incarnation of Shiva, the many armed Hindu god of destruction or Lucifer himself the judge in Blood Meridian is this primary initial kind of trickster, and we saw that in the the passage that Aaron read. That is that is a trickster move. He may be a giant, but it's not quite about physical intimidation, right? That's trickster. That's I'm going to cause anarchy in this moment, um, if I may,
1: too. Because mm-hmm. and then in the rest of the novel, do they do they ever step foot in a church that hasn't been completely wrecked? Oh. Right. No, of they, it's not. either
0: wrecked or yeah. they wreck it, I think. Or they yeah. wreck
1: it. Yeah. yeah. And so, of course, but
2: the, the, the stat, I don't know what you call, what do you call statues of saints? Statuary? Is that correct?
1: Sure. Yeah, but sure. you, know,
2: like, you walk into these churches, there will be a Mary holding the Christ child, but the Christ child's head will have been severed.
3: Oof, right it's
2: very it's very it's very uh particular it's, it's intentional it's very deliberate is the word I'm stumbling for yeah
1: sure yeah well, hundred this- percent I mean how do we meet him he you know you have these this I, I what's the word for him some sort of Protestant preacher uh and he disrupts the service and the tent gets slashed and he accuses him of being a pedophile and a goat fucker. yeah uh, it's 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 pretty hilarious
0: Oh, I can I, I I just admire the right the the move at, from a writing craft standpoint when the the teamster fella just cuts unseams the tent with his knife and they step out there's something that will I will have that in my head forever. I I don't know what it is about that. It just works. Your
1: your reality is so flimsy. Yep. I'll just cut it wide open. And yep. if I can I, do this to the tent of God, what could I do t- unto you? Mm.
2: Well, also, there's like with this book, there's all this metaphysical cool stuff, but it's grounded in the particular. Don't forget the judge ends up with the reverend's fucking offering when they go into the bar. The judge is there with hat, a hat with a handful of coins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he's chaos, but he is chaos for a reason. He is. Yes. order. I want that money.
0: hmm. And I will do whatever s- arrangement of 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 events that I can kick off to get to that point. Right. It's a it's testicle. so
1: it, it, it's so funny that he does. He talks like a lawyer uh, frequently in, in the
0: novel. That is so funny. Well, I think that's positive. why everybody be- I, I think that's why everybody believes him. It's so you can't just stand up and be like, ah, he fucked a goat that's not going to quite work, right? No, you need if to you have, come up and you've got mm. specifics and he was here and he was there and, oh, well, you understand that the state of Mississippi and, mm-hmm. you know, right, like, people are... Uh, epistemologically, everybody's like, well, okay. Sure. Yeah. Yeah,
1: right. But you as the reader, you enjoy the irony of it because you know, of course, this is yeah. some sort of devilish flammery. Yeah. Yeah, very fun. Yeah. And so, of course, then what your job is... Is to be the judge yourself, so you get judge, to judge. judge, the judge, judge the judge, and that none of that's accidental. I can see Aaron has something in front of him. Yeah,
2: no, go ahead. No, I'm, I, Brad was want, wanting to read the stuff. From yeah,
0: let know. me let me finish this little bit. Oh yeah, yeah. This, oh, oh my yeah. gosh,
1: I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's before, okay. Before you before you do, I just want to put a put a pin in uh, Aaron's a bug in in Aaron's ear, which is yeah. I don't know I don't know if I mentioned it yet, but we want to know we really do want to know who the hell you think the narrator of this book is really? don't answer now but yeah, we want to know there. okay yeah. go ahead brad
0: yeah so let, let me let me just finish it's it's quite short um Although there are overt references to references to Holden's somewhat satanic nature throughout, he is not the grim adversary of God who brings about the ru- ruination of Adam and Eve and tempts Christ in his wanderings, or the philosophical enemy of Faust. He is rather the tempter trickster of folklore, the prosecutor Old Scratch uh, of Bennett's, uh, uh, the devil and Daniel Webster, the wily blues man of Robert Johnson's Crossroads, the fiddler of Charles Charlie Daniels' "The Devil Devil Went Down to Georgia." I like this. Framing him as a as having a trickster component, right? He is the Miltonic Satan, but he is also the fiddle player in the devil and the devil went down to Georgia. And I think there's some truth to that. Let me just read a little bit more like Loki, like Lucifer, the judge is at war with the authority of the universe. He resents God's omnipotence and omniscience and wishes to seize as much of it as he can. As he inscribes his own book with his natural findings in the manner of a Joseph Banks, the book is consistently referred referred to as a ledger, not as a journal for recording knowledge, but as a ledger where accounts are totaled and settled. When Toadvine questions his constant writing and collecting of specimens, Holden tells him that whatever in creation exists without my knowledge exists without my consent, challenging God's role as chief arbiter of nature. He goes on to say, this is the last little bit, the man who believes that the secrets of the world are forever hidden lives in mystery and fear. But that man who sets himself the task of singling out the thread of order from the tapestry will, by the decision alone, have taken charge of the world. And it is only by such taking charge that he will effect a way to dictate the terms of his own fate. Okay, that's
1: well, that's a scientific impulse as well.
0: That's knowing the more we know, the
1: more we can parse, the Mm. more we can break things apart. Uh, Right, right, right. Uh, Making the
0: making very interesting. Yeah. There's always a um, this is one of the appeals, I think, just from a character standpoint of the judge as you're reading this. um, You kind of come through reading these things, you're like, man, this guy's a lot smarter than me. Like, (laughs) Like he might be wrong. There's an interesting part um, where he's uh, he's he's sketching in in one of I think it might be Webster actually tells the judge, like, please basically says, don't draw me. Right. Don't draw me. And they all make fun of them because they, they think this guy's being vain. The whole crew makes fun of them for being for being vain. And Judge Holden says he's not he's not being vain. There's something else going on here. He's not it's not vanity. And and at some point. He explains, he explains, uh, Judge Holden explains that, like, you're afraid that I am somehow going to capture you by doing this. And uh, I think it's Webster says, And I'm sorry, I'm doing this from memory, but Webster says, I'm not going to I'm not going to try and contest you with words. He says this to Judge Holden. I'm not going to try and contest you to, with words, but it's not like you say. And please don't draw me. <laughs> and I think you confront when you're dealing with the Holden, you confront this. You're like. I can't argue against like we don't have logical arguments against him necessarily. It's hard to come up with. A, he's 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 going to beat you in court. uh. And if you're going to stand against him, you might not actually be able to rely on your 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 logic or your rationale Pose a syllogism that he can't crack. Right. It's going to have to be something else.
2: Only save my crusted mug from out your ledger therefore I'd not have it be shown about perhaps to strangers and then the company had already begun to call to him his conceit Mm. and would it perhaps would there be tar and feathering at its unveiling right and the judge called for amnesty (laughs) he said that Webster's feelings were of another nature entirely and he told them the story and it was this story about an old Waco whose painting he had made And the man became obsessed and he feared that harm would come to it. So the judge accompanied him across a desert and they hid the painting in a cave where for aught he knows it lies there yet. Mm.
1: (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes exactly well and if we take if
1: we take webster is standing in for all word cells everywhere because of the mm. name and webster's dictionary then of course it stands to reason that the, that stand-in would not want to be drawn well and true oh.
0: there's also mm-hmm. daniel webster from joke. the devil and dad da- the devil and daniel webster myth. it could be both right it's, uh, it, cool it, it is both it's,
1: yeah. well it's like it's like when he talks about the two johns uh who had different names, but they were both Johns. Well, okay, is one uh, John of the Gospels and the other John of Revelations. Brad and I had a little, what is he talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a is- little book
2: that every American of the day would have known. This was known as Webster's
1: Blueback
2: Speller. It's a spelling book, right? <laughs> the American spelling book. Everyone <laughs> had a copy of this in his home. Was the most famous book in America after the King James Bible. Wow,
0: wow, yeah. Right. And they don't spell flavor with a damn U in there, do they?
2: That's
3: right, right.
2: right? Yeah. And so, <laughs> because this was such a
0: frontier country,
2: there had to be uh, some attempt at regularization, and Webster's enormously important for that.
0: One hundred percent. Yes. Yes. Yeah, well, where else do we want to go with this? I mean, there's a ton of directions we can go. I, I want to follow um, up
3: with something
2: you were just saying. Yeah. The judge, like, who is this motherfucker, right? He's he's running <laughs> around, he's talking shit, he's massive, he can, according to the ex-priest, <clears throat> draw with both hands simultaneously, shoot with both hands. He's quote, either handed as a spider. Right. Yeah. The best fiddler you ever heard. I mean, the best. Mm-hmm. He can, you know, shoot a buck, scout a trail, ride a horse. He
1: yeah. All this. He talent. speaks Dutch. He learned it from yeah. a Dutchman. Yeah. I couldn't have learned it from 10. How about you? Right. It's yeah, I mean, yeah. Right. <laughs>
2: And in addition, you
1: you know the judge would have had a killer podcast. (laughs) The best podcast,
2: a a podcast to subsume all other podcasts. We would now be in his podcast network.
3: Right. 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 Yeah. I think we we might be.
2: We'd have to pause right now to do manscaped ads, right? So (laughs) the thing about the judge, in addition to all this other shit, he's constantly as they make their journey west, he's finding artifacts
3: and drawing them, and mm-hmm.
2: his ledger, and in his book, right? The judge all day had made small forays among the rocks of the gorse through which they'd passed, and now at the fire, he spread part of a wagon sheet on the ground, and was sorting out his finds, and arranging them before him. In his lap, he held the leather ledger book, and he took up each piece, plot or potsherd, or tool of bone, and deftly sketched it into the book. He sketched with a practiced ease, and there was no wrinkling of that bald brow or pursing of those oddly childish lips. His fingers traced the impression of old willow wicker on a piece of pottery clay, and he put them into his book with nice shadings, an economy of pencil strokes. He is a draftsman. As he is, other things, well sufficient to the task. Lastly, he set before him the footpiece from a suit of armor hammered out in a shop in Toledo three centuries before, a small steel tapadero, frail and shelled with rot. This the judge sketched in profile and in perspective, citing the dimensions in his neat script, making marginal notes. Glanton watched him. When the judge had done, he took up the little foot guard and turned it in his hand and studied it. And then he crushed it into a ball of foil and pitched it into the fire. He gathered up the other artifacts and cast them also into the fire. And he shook out the wagon sheet and folded it away among his possibles together with his notebook. Then he sat with his hands cropped in his lap and he seemed much satisfied with the world as if his counsel had been sought at its creation. (laughs) So we're going to driving toward what is the judge a judge of? It's Mm -hmm. interesting how often you see him make copies of artifacts of physical things. He has the ledger book then he destroys the original. Mm -hmm. There's a constant taking of the artifact, taking of the real, the taking of the physical, making a representation, a Mm -hmm. representation (laughs) of that thing, and then destroying the evidence, destroying the original, replacing the original with a counterfeit.
0: Mm -hmm. And as he says, all books are lies. Right. Well, a false book. Well, he says books lie. Books lie, yeah.
2: Books yeah, lie, right? Not
0: books are lies. That's right. There, there's a difference there. Books sure. lie, yeah. and,
2: and then, then the man says, "God don't lie." And the judge responds, "No, he does not." And these are his words, right? He holds up a rock. Mm-hmm. He speaks in bones and trees. He st- he speaks in stones and trees the bones of things.
1: And that's an excellent example of, uh, I don't know if it's foreshadowing, but it's such a sly move because it sets up the major passage in the story that is recounted to the kid, which is for many people, the highlight of the the book, which is the story of the judge concocting, uh, what is it? Uh, Gunpowder out of, the the earth around them in the desert two different mountains sulfur and then the, their own piss in mm-hmm. this kind of unholy communion to create this uh again gunpowder because they're they're dry of gunpowder they have none left and they're yeah, gonna be, they're, they're gonna be the hot, massacred hot.
0: yeah they're yeah. under hot pursuit at the moment
1: yeah. yeah and they're gonna be massacred by the uh the apache and there's a I don't have the page in front of me, but there's a moment where they're waiting for the the sun to dry the sort of wicked paste that they've created out of their own mm-hmm. urine. Uh, and the judge has sort of shoveled it into almost like a like a thick, kind of cakey batter. And there's a moment where the a cloud almost covers the sun. And it, it's just this Hitchcock level of of tension being woven there and you you know that the that the the cloud would not thwart the judge somehow like you you know they're gonna they're gonna get what they came for but he just uh Cormac or the narrator Cormac writing describes the judge's mixture as a matrix yes a matrix and that's how he tells you that it's sort of starting to crack but and 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 create a pattern but that to me if we're talking about Gnosticism another great piece of popular media is quite literally called the matrix about it, which is a Gnostic allegory. In any case, Mm -hmm. yeah, go ahead, Mm -hmm. uh, Aaron. It's page 138 and 139. And back to
2: McCarthy's humor, his humor, he's so fucking funny. And in this scene, that is, it's the thing, right? It's the all great texts that have the story within the story, the play within the play, the tale within the Mm tale, how came the learned man is the head note. Where did the judge come from? Where, where is this old boy, right?
3: Mm-hmm. But
2: in the midst of that, Tobin's, the ex-priest, of course, is telling the story. And then he describes the judge mixing this. And then Tobin says, I didn't know, but what we'd be required to bleed in it like Freemasons, but it was not so he worked it up dry with his hands, and all the while, the savages down there on the plains drawing nigh to us, and when I turned back, the judge was standing the great hairless oath, and he took out his pizzle, and he was pissing into the mixture, pissing with a great vengeance, and one hand aloft, and he cried for us to do likewise. We were half mad anyways, all lined up, Delawares and all, every man save Glanton, and he was a study. We hauled forth our members and at it we went and the judge on his knees kneading the mass with his naked arms and the piss was splashing about and he was crying out to us to piss man. Piss for your very souls, for can't you see the redskins yonder and laughing the wild and working up the great mass in a foul black dough, a devil's batter by the stink of it and him not a dark, bloody pastry man himself, I don't suppose. And he pulls out his knife and he commences to trowel it across the south facing rocks.
0: Was it piss for your very souls? (laughs) That's so good. (laughs) i
1: can't uh i can't read as well uh on the fly as aaron i don't have this the spirit in me maybe i need to uh you know study some more gnosticism but i want to get to this word because brad and i on a back that was that was awesome aaron that's so much Mm -hmm. fun uh i may have we may have to cast you for the theater company at some point for a reading uh (laughs) but and this is later in that passage we had I would suppose an hour we watched the savages and we watched the judges foul matrix drying on the rocks and we watched a cloud that was making for the sun the etymology of the word matrix uh is obvious it comes from the late Middle English in the sense of womb from Latin breeding female later womb from mater mother guarantee Mm. he's aware of that but it also suggests the this mixture is starting to crack under the heat of the sun Mm -hmm. it's just extraordinarily deft and very i don't think very many other writers would come up with that that word for that moment um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. pregnant with so much meaning pardon the Mm -hmm. pun Indeed. indeed
3: look at
2: what happens right after that right So after the judge is sitting there, they're all watching. And by the way, the judge does glance up at the cloud. There's a cloud that's making for the sun. They're worried if the cloud covers the sun, won't dry the matrix, no gunpowder. And the, the Apaches will find them and it'll be bad fucking news. But finally, that doesn't happen. The judge closes his book and takes up his leather shirt, right? And we heaped it up in the shirt and he commenced to chop it and grind it with his knife. And Captain Glanton, he calls out. Captain Glanton, would you believe it? Captain Glanton, he calls, come charge that swivel bore of yours and let's see what manner of thing we have here. Glanton comes up with his rifle and he scooped his chargers full and he charged both barrels and patched two balls and drove them home and capped the piece and made to step to the rim. That was never the judge's way down the maw of the thing, he says, and Glanton never questioned it. He went down the pitch of the inner rim to where lay the terminus of that terrible flu. And he held his piece out over it and pointed it straight down and cocked the hammer and fired. You wouldn't hear a sound like it in a long day's ride. It'd give me the fidgets. He fired both barrels and he looked at us and he looked at the judge. The judge just waved and went on with his grandin'. And then he called us all about to fill our horns and flasks and we did one by one circling past him like communicants.
0: <laughs> right, right, right. Oh
2: yeah. yeah,
1: he's in he's playing with all of that stuff. And you're if you're following this Gnostic trajectory, there's a certain idea in Gnosticism uh, where it's kind of antinatal, the idea that, that why would you bring life into
0: this world if
1: this world is fallen and under the hands of the Yeah. Why would demi-urge? you
0: why would you do the work of the demiurge and trap more light in this dimension?
1: Yeah. Correct. And what do these fellows do? They take out their generative organs and mm-hmm. they create out of the earth, out of the very world around them, out of the very desert around them, uh, they create this devilish i mean it's literally sulfur is one of the things there that's in use there they create this hellish gunpowder that then they use to to take life out of the world mm-hmm. in a very similar so it's this inversion of fecundity it's this like anti life mm-hmm. moment yeah mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: not to get too freudian but i think it's all pretty obviously there
0: yeah and the judges I cool. be the judges of a, a priest of it in a way mm-hmm. right correct
2: All of this concludes, right? The kid listens. This is the kid listening to this whole chapter. The kid listening to the ex-priest Tobin tell this story about how came the learned man. How did the judge come to join them? And at the conclusion of this chapter, the kid's only response to this amazing story is this. The ex-priest turned and looked at the kid. And that was the judge, the first I ever saw him. Aye, he's a thing to study. The kid looked at Tobin. What's he a judge of? He said. What's he a judge of? What's he a judge of? Tobin glanced off across the fire. Ah, lad, he said. Hush now. The man will hear ye. He's ears like a fox. <laughs> Dangerous question.
0: Yeah, Danger. you're not even supposed to ask, right? Ask. I'm the
1: implication ask. is, if you ask, he he will be the judge of you, and it foreshadows the kid's ultimate fate. It's you
3: don't news. want.
1: Yeah, you don't want that guy to. He's. It's the Eye of Sauron. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah
2: bad news we're, we're, driving <laughs> toward it, we're driving toward what to judge a little more mm-hmm. so much stuff though i mean you, you bring up one passage and you have these trails that go into philosophy into theology theosophy cosmology american history the thing i'm most interested in personally my my own obsession right is is that like oh my gosh the Bowie knife this is 1849 1850 the Bowie knife comes to existence in 1828 and now all these Americans have them right I mean so I'm I'm thinking about a lot of this stuff historically and about the material culture of these men and what the fuck is a swivel bore right (laughs) very rare firearms got two barrels you can swivel swivel the barrels because it doesn't have a rotating cylinder.
0: Huh. Okay. Right?
2: The, barrels turn. the
0: barrel itself turns. Interesting.
2: The the, the cartridge, a self-contained pistol or rifle cartridge.
1: Uh Aaron's good Aaron's gonna okay. You you go. got a, bullet, a bullet on the pod. Bullet, bullet on right? the pod. So
3: mm-hmm.
1: you didn't have a bullet, a charge of yep. powder
2: mm-hmm. now. We have brass, they copper, uh, mm-hmm. and then some sort of primer, a cap rather. You didn't have that then. So what you had is you carried rifle and pistol balls, lead balls. You carried black powder and a horn or mostly in a horn, a powder horn. And then you had these small percussion caps, not greatly different than what you probably played with as a kid if you
1: had a cap gun back when kids still went outside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, what's yeah. what's yeah. happened to the world around us and how <laughs> how could that possibly relate to the the novel Blood Meridian by the great late Cormac McCarthy? I think that's another thing and I I don't want to talk over you here Aaron but I think it's another thing about this book is that as your student aptly noted you can feel it around you and feel. it it's it's an historical novel but it's about our world right now today. 100% I love it.
3: Mm-hmm. It's about a yeah. world.
2: I, I There's a piece that oh, you referenced the early piece that I had in the Spectator, today's Spectator, uh, the August issue about Blood Meridian and, and what Americans are getting themselves into uh, ordering this book off Amazon right now. And I had some lines in the piece I ended up cutting, but it's clear to me that the judge today would be bowmenting and profiting from war wherever it existed.
1: I don't see how you could look at American history. I mean it's a, it's an extraordinarily warlike country. The country has had a great deal of war and visited a lot of war on other on other nations. uh there's a there's sort of a strange bloodthirst. I mean if we if we're going to believe that the Arkans are real, it's a tricky thing. Uh, I don't want to get into politics, but if you if you have a sober look at the 20th century, uh, it was an absolute charnel house. And of course, now we have the, the Oppenheimer film is coming out. Um what do you what what's to be said about how absolutely brutal that century was? Uh both America dishing it out and then participating in trying to stop others from dishing it out. It's this sort of like cycle of evil and evil on a scale that I don't think most people can, can really process sitting in our homes podcasting, but a book like this can kind of, or listening to podcasts, uh, a book like this can kind of crack the world open a little bit. Can give you, give you a, a way in, to to feel something just about, I guess, the cruel violence of the of the human landscape. Yeah, is one of the things this book does.
2: And, and and what it feels like to be a body of flesh and blood and breakable bone, wandering around this world, and how quickly we break, how frail we are. How and how devastating pain, physical pain can be, how devastating it can be and how much of it there used to be in the lives of people. There's still a great deal of physical pain. Great. deal, But it used to be the existence of Americans in the 19th century, mid-19th century is all about pain. And, And if you were Native American, you were Apache or Comanche. Oh, boy. Think about what they lived through. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And think about what they weren't able to live through, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like 99% of the Comanche were wiped from the face of the earth. Think about that 99% of an entire people, right? Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a brutality that's really difficult
1: to imagine scrolling TikTok.
0: Yeah. Well, and this is, I, and I'm, I've stepped away for a moment, so I apologize. I don't know what I, hashes. I'm
1: sorry. When I scroll TikTok, I do get into a homicidal rage. <laughs> oh. An indiscriminate gang yeah. gang, yum yeah. yum, gang yeah. gang, oh, homicidal rage. Stop. Sorry,
0: <laughs> had to be done. I would rather read about a, a herd of you know of you'd rather you'd rather read, yeah mountain. you'd
1: rather read about a tree of dead babies yeah which is than, one of which is that. one of the haunt the most haunting images in all of all of it literature is. it is i mean we've got Bosch we've got Dante we've got Milton we have Shakespeare mm-hmm. we have the Bible we have uh John Ford we've got uh mm-hmm. the searchers we've got uh ingmar bergman uh the seventh seal i mean this thing just sets off it's an absolute cacophony in my uh intertextual media hypersaturated brain when i'm reading this it's such a joy go on well
0: and 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 one of i mean we talk about the judge and of course the judge is the one of the most sort of appealing from a literary standpoint aspects of the story but to me the landscape itself plays this role that is um almost unmatched elsewhere in literature and it's constantly it you will hear people refer to a book and be like, oh, the the environment is like a character. But here it really, it really sort of is. And this is what was interesting about your spectator, your recent spectator piece, Aaron, was that the the art for it, and I don't know who did that, but the art for it was the judge's head as the sun, um, which is kind of Gnostic in and of itself, right? Really, you know, if the land is demonic itself. But but you feel there is you're in contest with the environment. It's beautiful, but it will also take your life at a moment's notice. And they're constantly passing through very alien territory that is has characteristics that I think if you haven't been outside and touched grass in a while, you might not realize are even part of what the earth can be like. You know, there's a there's a passage I was reading where they're re- They're 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 riding and the heat off of this rock wall is so intense. They have to like turn their head away from it because it's just such the, the heat radiating off of it is is basically burning them. Um There's at one point somebody gets picked up by like a little dust devil uh, or they find somebody who'd been picked up by a dust devil, I believe. Um There's that beautiful bit where they're kind of they're going down through into some like dry riverbed or something. And a bear grabs one of the Delaware, like a storybook beast. um, And his compatriot, his Delaware compatriots track, try to track it for several days, but have no luck actually finding after actually finding him. Um, It's just like at any moment, the landscape can just open up and any number of horrors will be. Voiced upon you. I yeah. want to
2: read just that paragraph because oh, it's,
0: it's so good.
2: Because we've we've talked about like the, the terror, the horror, the brutality, but and the humor. There's another side to this, and the side that side is the insanely beautiful, sublime prose that echoes the King James Bible, Shakespeare, Melville. That passages. They rode on into the mountains and their way took them through high pine forests, wind in the trees, lonely bird calls, the shoeless mules slaloming through the dry grass and pine needles in the blue coolies on the north slopes, narrow tailings of old snow. They rode up switchbacks through a lonely aspen wood where the fallen leaves lay like golden disclets in the damp black trail. The leaves shifted in a million spangles down the pale corridors, and Glanton took one and turned it like a tiny fan by its stem and held it and let it fall and its perfection was not lost on him. They rode through a narrow draw where the leaves were shingled up in ice, and they crossed a high saddle at sunset where wild doves were rocketing down the wind and passing through the gap a few feet off the ground, veering wildly among the ponies and dropping off down into the blue gulf below. They rode on into a dark fir forest, the little Spanish ponies sucking the thin air, and just at dusk, as Glanton's horse was clambering over a fallen log, a lean blonde bear rose up out of the swale on the far side where it had been feeding and looked down at them with dim pig's eyes. <laughs> <is> so good.
0: <laughs> so good. I mean, yeah, it's you're talking about beautiful nature uh, on par with the best of the romantic poets. And then it's punctuated by a, a a monster being attacked by a monster
1: yeah it, it reminds yeah. me of one of my one of my favorite artists uh Werner herzog mm. it's a he has a similar sensibility where he can appreciate pastoral nature he mm. can represent it and show it to you in a way that makes you kind of gasp for breath uh but then he turns the screw and he knows and he even says that it's just cruel it's just nature it's just a a carnival of murder it's a symphony of murder
0: i'm from a school of thought that you can't actually fully appreciate that beauty unless you can reckon with the other side of it unless you recognize that it will murder you at a moment's notice
1: (laughs) yeah it's almost like you're a blood meridian respecter brad i mean that you could you could say that's like What's it about? What's this book yeah. about? It's about that thing, Brad, just described mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in part. Kind
2: of Guys, yeah. about something. This is this is a blood meridian thought, and I think about this a lot when I read the book. And I was talking about Philip Meyer the other day. Every time I've seriously injured myself, like like bad hospital injury shit, right as it was happening, the first thought in my head is the thought of a child if his father like accidentally dropped him
3: mm-hmm.
2: and that thought is like, Oh my gosh, this can happen. My life is not a video game. My
3: mm-hmm.
2: life is not, not on rails, not on skids. There's no mm-hmm. bumpers. Right. Mm-hmm. I've, I've told the story. It's not a big deal. I had a, I had a spinal injury in my squat rack in may of 2021 broke my back, had to have emergency spinal surgery. And it was a lot of pain as it was happening. As I hit the ground under Uh, a loaded barbell, I felt betrayed. I felt betrayed by the universe.
3: Right, right.
2: Because we walk through our lives and we have this, I have this sense that that there's somebody, I'm protected from danger in some way. Mm -hmm. I just have that sense of being protected. And -hmm. of course, that's an illusion. It's not real. Now, maybe without that, we wouldn't be able to do anything. And maybe people who have really terrible anxiety... Are closer to the truth that there's nothing keeping you from falling in the shower right right there's nothing keeping you from choking on your dinner tonight people the emergency rooms are full of dead people who die
1: i'll 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 tell you something as a parent of young children uh and of course the way this book begins is with the sentence see the child yeah i'm co-parenting i mean i'm a parent with uh, another parent, you know, another parent uh of a soon to be three year old who's a runner. And he he will run into the street if we don't hold his hand. And that is right. a very similar feeling to what you're describing, uh, Aaron, where you're you think, uh, oh my God, there's there's nothing stopping him. He has no impulse control uh he's like Brad was in grad school
0: yeah that's right uh he
1: he he can't control (laughs) himself in workshop but but you know what I'm saying like it's just pandemonium for this this child see the Mm -hmm. child and and he'll turn a corner and we know now and we do our very best but every parent has had that that heart drop where you go oh my God I'm responsible for this
0: to the nth yeah and nobody else
1: will step nobody else will step in yeah uh a car will I, run over your child yeah. like uh like nothing
0: yeah I had a I have a close friend who has a a son similar very similar age and when he was about to- getting into toddler age he described him as it's like having a clown that's constantly trying to kill himself <laughs> it's like hilarious but he will literally die if you stop paying attention for 30 seconds
3: yeah <laughs> I
2: I uh I grew up I grew up on a Cattle ranch was raised by my grandparents and I wanted to do everything with my granddad and he's still with us. Great guy. There's no reason why you wouldn't want to do everything with him. But so he would go out. I don't know if people that aren't raised in the country know about these. So we had a big Ford tractor and to cut the grass, uh, like around the property, we had tons of acres. Um, you have a thing you attach called a brush hogger. Right, which is like a massive mower you drag with a tractor. Right, the blade is maybe five feet long on some of these massive, massive piece of machinery. Right, and so I would want to. The fun thing to do is to sit uh, on top of one of the fenders above the big tires. Right, just be right there. It's just a kid would want to do that. Right, my granddad no, and so what he would do, he we had a front end loader on this tractor. He tied a rope, and he would seat me right in front of the steering wheel, right in front of him. No way I could fall. There's no falling off. There's nothing to fall onto except backwards to him, or you just—it's fine, right? It's totally—and I have a little rope to hold onto. And I would beg him to be on the fender. Go no. And one of his friends had a son, five years old. Put him on the fender, brush hogging. The boy fell off backwards and was completely mutilated instantly Mm -hmm. by a brush hunter, right?
3: Mm -hmm. You
2: think about the kind of horror a lot of people lived with on on farms and ranches and across the country. And that is something that is quite foreign to us in 2023.
1: My uh, great-grandfather on my mother's side uh left, I believe, eight children behind after a gruesome farm accident where he was run over by a tiller, basically had his Ugh. gut spilled out. And Ugh. my grandma lived with that, you know, the and she was a stern woman. There wasn't a lot of uh, warmth from from that right. side. But you hear stories like that and you begin to understand wow, I'm griping about nothing.
0: I it's, should it's, I mean mm-hmm. yeah. This thing is still this thing is still happening. I mean, I know about a guy three or four years ago. I don't know all the details of the story, but basically his working on a farm. His coat got caught up in some kind of axle or another. Again, I don't have all the details, but basically it grabbed his coat and it twisted it and twisted it and twisted, it and crushed him inside of his jacket whoa yeah so i guess this is a
1: long way of saying yeah. anyway blood meridian uh <laughs> and it, right. it, it, but it will it, it provokes these kind of conversations i mean we're, well, we're getting into we're, we're gonna I come up for an hour here and yeah go yeah. go on brett well on. let
0: me tell you just like one thing i think about a lot in 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 a lot of this book to me is weird my memory of it having read it a number of times i feel like i remember most of it but i don't always remember the sequence of events, if that makes sense, like I don't always remember what leads into the next thing, but I do recall fairly early on the the um, the uh, ambush that the kid survives, where the kid and I believe one other guy are the only people who survive, and he has an arrow in his leg. Um, yes, honestly, anytime I'm dealing with some even minor endurance thing, like I have some minor injury, but I got to do something anyway, that moment comes to my mind of just a arrow in your leg trying to make it across the desert don't really even know where you're going thirsty hot bleeding infected <laughs> you know it's it, it's like a constant note in my head for whatever reason i would rather There's be a... shot
2: with a high caliber i'd rather be shot with a high velocity rifle and any pistol round yeah than, than hit with an arrow oh
1: yeah 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 there's well, there's the, there's the scene where dull. uh where the kid volunteers and then this will get us on to the sexuality or like sex in this book which is Ooh. not pleasant which is not pleasant um, but yeah. there's a lot of like pederasty there's a lot of the the sex is not a nice positive thing in this book but there's that no. this there's a scene uh another Freudian type thing where uh the kid volunteers to help push the arrow through uh the fellows do you recall the character who it is yes David Brown Brown push the arrow through his leg the arrow comes out whole on the other side and he's pleased about that because it means he's not going to have a part of the arrow lodged in his whatever his thigh wherever it's set uh and then, then the old man comes over and says something kind of uncanny to to the kid. Aaron, you're nodding. What is it that he says, roughly? Fool,
2: don't you know he'd have taken you with him? He'd have taken you,
1: lad, like a bride to the altar. Does he mean to his tent? What is he talking yeah. about there? Yeah. To death. That oh, is such
2: physical pain that if that hadn't worked out, that Brown might have just torn his throat out.
0: Right. Oh, whoa. And, and there's that, but then there's also just the generally taking care of somebody who can't hold their own weight. It's like rescuing a swimmer, right? Mm. Like you're mm-hmm. in this environment where the stakes are incredibly high. The wrong step in any direction can lead to you dying. This guy doesn't give a shit about you living. He is in such agony that he only cares about himself, as is human nature. It's not even a judgment on Brown necessarily. That's just how it is to be a human being. He talks yeah, about be, him. they say that in trying to rescue swimmers. It's like literally like don't. <laughs> yeah, well, unless yeah, you yeah. unless you know what you're doing. Unless you're unless you, you know what you're doing or you've training. got, you know, life preservers mm-hmm. or whatever. But like Yeah. Yeah. I love um, that. Bit. What was
2: I gonna say about the I lost it. I'll come back to it. Go, Go ahead.
1: ahead. Well, he describes a brown after the arrow is pulled out. Uh Making like a female gesture on the on the uh, the ground, so evocative, lurid. And, a lurid, a lurid female, yeah. And so, you, and your mind just creates it in your mind. It's so uh, masterful. Uh, it's sort of awful too. There's thinking about sex and blood meridian. The just how uh there's a point where there's a massacre being described or happening and. Talks about one of the these run of
0: the mill massacres. One of these, one of these massacres. <laughs> it
1: talks about. I think it's, I think it's the Apache. It talks about them like sodomizing the dying soldiers. I mean, and you're just reading this and going, "Damn! Like, yeah. whoa! Uh, like, okay, there's a tree of dead babies. Now we have some, you know, murderous sodomy. I mean, it's 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 a deeply, yeah. Uh, anyway, that's the kind of book it is.
2: Yeah, yeah. if you're dying. Do you want someone there who cares about you and, and can speak words of comfort and remembrance? Or do you want the Comanches who will sodomize no. you with loud cries to their fellows?
0: Right. Yeah. I want,
2: I, want, I want to be comforted a little bit. I, uh, yeah. I mean,
0: yeah. I would take even nothing at all. Uh, sure. Sure. <laughs> just, let me let it I Right. Mean. Yeah, yeah. I'll go into it by myself if it's between that and the Apat being sodomized. That's
2: the that's the line of the podcast, right? I would take (laughs) nothing at all. That's like (laughs) it's almost (laughs) like that's such a McCarthy (laughs) line. I would take nothing at all.
1: Yeah, it's 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 a really horrific passage. It's one of those Mm -hmm. passages in a novel where you pause and maybe you go back over it again and go, Did I read that right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I read that right. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. damn i mean and this it, there's not a punch pulled in this novel no. uh and it, it's not for the faint of heart either uh and yet it is a, it,
0: and yet it is somehow kind of fun to read it's, it's I find a, it, See i yeah I, 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 maybe this is my sort of nature when pe- i don't have difficulty reading it because of the darkness or the violence or any of that like it doesn't put me off i and and, and i'm i'm not even somebody who seeks that necessarily like for instance I don't like like body horror films like I just don't get it honestly like but for whatever reason within blood meridian it doesn't it it unnerves me but I find that unnerving somehow satisfying the fact that I'm my jimmies have been rustled
1: I think where I come down on it is that well we talked a lot about Disney lately on the pod Mm -hmm on mm-hmm. old art of darkness podcast. Yeah. And yeah. uh when you it's a good show, by the way. You grow up feeling, yeah, I've heard that. You grow up feeling uh like you've been lied to. And I think I think all children are you're lied to somewhat as a child. You have to be and you you know they have to you know whatever. You can't just come to a five-year-old and go Santa isn't real we're not even sure about God. Good luck, kid. Right? <laughs> like you, you know you have to sort of nudge people along. But there's a there's a certain point where you like Disney as we've pointed out has sort of taken over the zeitgeist, takes over huge chunks of the zeitgeist, makes yeah. everything cute and nice, deracinates right. the German and Celtic folk tales, takes all the teeth and out all the blood out of everything. And controls sports ball, and that's the world that you're presented with. And the most dangerous you might get would be taking money, maybe you have earmarked for your kid, and parlaying it on the NBA finals. And oh, I'm such a bad <laughs> boy, you know. Mm-hmm. Or you can read Blood Meridian, and as Bukowski said, you could have the the mouse kicked right the fuck out of your head, which is what a book like this does. Mm-hmm. And it isn't a fetish object. It does it in a way that connects it to all of these very meaningful things that we've already noted, uh, but also stands firm, firmly stands on its own. And so, for me, Brad, when I when I encounter that justified violence in great works of art, mm-hmm. it just it it reminds me of reality, such
0: yeah. as it is. Yeah. yeah and yeah. and there's no there's no mickey mouse there's no donald duck and, and uh, let's face it history has been a charnel house
1: just like the 20th, but- the 20th century alone i mean yeah. the 20th century is just like in terms of pure numbers yeah no worse no worse century in terms of like horrific death at scale
0: well, uh, and I'm reading, I'm I'm and maybe it's slightly teased. I am preparing the John Milton episode of Art of Darkness. And during John Milton's lifetime, there were two plagues. One wiped out a sixth of London, and another wiped out, I believe, a eighth of the population of London. And then the next year, the entire city burned to the ground. Was okay, it sixteen so... sixty was it sixteen sixty-six? That was the sixteen sixty-six great fire of sixteen sixty-six. So you, these things are that is what life is all of this stuff that we've managed to thank God we've managed to cobble together some convenience and comfort and safety but like you can only maintain that if you're aware of how dangerous it is just outside of it right because otherwise you're going to start to get sloppy you're going to start well it's not really that dangerous you know right and there that's that edifying
1: cathartic thing that comes from work Mm -hmm. of art like this Mm -hmm. for real yeah yeah aaron do you want to grace Mm -hmm. us with any uh any anything from the spectator article that dropped today or 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 from your obit that that you that you wrote because you were you're one of the people that they they tapped when they tapped when when it happened and i know oh my god i mean it it, that that was a terrible day we were all i know
2: it messed me up. I uh, I found out about it when um, an editor there messaged me and I picked up my phone and it said, Do you want to write McCarthy's obituary? And I'm like, like when he dies someday? And then I was like, Oh my gosh, right. And so uh... I I real quick and I was like, and I like he was so quick on it that I mean he couldn't have been, it would, had just been announced. Like there was, I, I, when I first Googled, there was, there were no articles. I had to go to Twitter because Twitter's a little quicker sometimes, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, it's are, not quicker we, with all the details, but it's quicker sometimes with the bike. Yeah. Yeah. The, the it'll, 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 event. if you
1: want to destroy your career, no place will yeah. do it quicker. <laughs> yeah. Twitter. That's right. It's the best
3: place
2: to set yourself on fire without having to get gasoline or a match. Um, where are we, are we? Are you getting ready to land us? Because I have a place to go. If we're, are, are you? Are you? Were you, I, just, Kevin? Were you thinking about landing the plane? Are you thinking toward that?
1: I, I think if we go for another half hour on this and then come back for the after dark, that'll be a good
0: amount of time. But I'm wide there, open. I there have is no, one. There is one I question I want to talk about that we haven't talked about. Um let, i
2: I I want to get to what the judge is a judge of, yeah, but I don't do know if that should come before or after Brad's, Brad's No, let's
0: Brad. let's let's do it because well well my question and I'll uh, free freewheel in here. Um I wanna know who the narrator is. I want to know who the judge is, but I want to know who the narrator is. And maybe we can maybe there's a way to segue from the who the judge is to who the narrator is.
2: I think these things are linked.
0: I think, I think so, kids, you know, too. That's my that's my that's my intuition, but I don't know if I have been able to articulate it yet.
2: So the judge is this old boy who is gathering these artifacts and then facing the originals, destroying the originals. There's a, a passage where the gang is riding along a rock wall and there are basically cave paintings, but they're they're etchings along the wall. And the judge rides along and he copies them in his book and then he stops his horse and gets a piece of rock and etches them away. He erases the original. So things he, that he think- takes he, he takes one of them too, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, copies them down, copies down, makes his representation and then he faces the original. No record. This thing never happened the art that these people made never happened it's gone yeah yeah so toward the end of the book the gang goes busto the kid is shot as you said with an arrow they get to san diego and the kid goes to a doctor and uh to have the arrow removed the doctor says you don't need to be drunk we have spirits of ether well the kid's dumb enough to to like take the spirits, of ether, and he has ether dreams. I was given ether when I was a little kid for a surgery. I, they should have just shot me in the face.
0: Um, it's 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 uh, it's insane. But yeah, it's go ahead. terrifying.
2: It's terrifying. <laughs> like I was nine. I cut this finger off. They reattached it. But I was lying there. They were getting ready to do surgery. And all I could think about, in my nine-year-old brain, is they're about to give me a shot. I don't want to get a shot. I'm scared of a shot. So I said, what, do you guys have to give me the shot? And this satanic anesthesiologist said, no. The Miltonic anesthesia, anesthesiologist, you're seven Jamie, foot tall. He yeah. goes, we can give you ether, ether, ether. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I was like, is it bad? And he goes, it smells like mommy's perfume. I was like, okay. And so then they put the mask on me and I started breathing. I was like, well, this kind of smells weird. And then... What I saw was the room turn upside down, right? Uh-huh. And I and I started panicking. I tried to pull off the mask, and the man said, "You got to breathe deep, or we'll give you the shot." So nice guy gone, mm. nice guy gone, right? So that was my ether experience.
0: Yeah. Oof. Um, Oof.
2: Now the narrator tells us as the kid is waking up from the anesthesia, in that sleep, and in sleeps to follow, the judge did visit. Who would come other, a great, shambling, mute, silent, and serene. And here's a good warning for us with what we've been doing right now. Mm-hmm. Whatever his antecedents, he was something wholly other than their sum, nor was there system by which to divide him back into his origins would not go. Whoever would seek out his history through what unraveling of loins and ledger books must stand at last darkened and dumb at the shore of a void without terminus or origin. And whatever science he might bring to bear upon the dusty primal matter blowing down of the millennia will discover no trace of any ultimate atavistic egg by which to reckon his commencing. In the white and empty room, he stood in his bespoken suit with his hat in his hand, and he peered down with his small and lashless pig's eyes, wherein this child, just 16 years on earth, could read whole bodies of decisions not accountable to the courts of men. And he saw his own name, which nowhere else could he have ciphered out at all, logged into the records as a thing already accomplished. In his delirium, he ransacked the linens of his pallet for arms, but there were none. The judge smiled. The fool was no longer there, but another man. And this other man he could never see in his entirety, but he seemed an artisan and a worker in metal. The judge enshadowed him where he crouched at his trade but he was a cold forger, literally counterfeiter, but he was Mm -hmm. a cold forger who worked with hammer and die, perhaps under some indictment and an exile from men's fires, hammering out like his own conjectural destiny all through the night of his becoming some coinage for a dawn that would not be. It is this false moneyer with his gravers and burrens who seeks favor with the judge. And he is at contriving from cold, slag, bruting the crucible, a face that will pass, an image that will render this residual specie current in the markets where men barter. Of this is the judge, judge, and the night does not end. So what the hell does all that mean? So there was no national currency in the United States before 1862 when Lincoln said, Listen, we need all these things to unify us. One of those things is money.
0: Yeah. I can it, tell them what sorry, happened. one second, one second. This dumb question. What year is this happening in Blood Marie? It, and I know it, roughly, but
2: this is 1850 now. Okay, right? okay. 1849, 1850 for most of the book and at the very end we skip forward to 1878. Right, okay. Like, so, until 1862 uh, or yeah, until 1862 there was no currency. If you wanted if you wanted to carry money around with you and you didn't want to carry gold or silver, you know, the coins, there were like double eagle coins minted, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That was called uh specie. Any coin, uh, you know, gold coin, silver coin, those are specie, currency or notes. Um, The notes that were circulated were notes printed by banks that were localized. So there might be a $20 uh, note printed by a bank in Georgia. And in that town, and maybe even in Georgia, people will accept that. But if you want to go to New Orleans, you may get to New Orleans and they say, fuck you and your right. George mode, right? Yeah. And so there's no national currency. Mostly what people did in order to um, buy and sell is they wrote IOUs. And those IOUs were then traded two, three, four, five more times. So a man's name was his worth. Right, so right, if right. I'm in a community and people know me, oh, he's he's a butcher. He always pays his bills. I know him. I know his family. I know him for, you know, blah, 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 blah. But yeah, if I write you an IOU, I know where to find you. I believe you will discharge your debt, right? contrary if I say, Brad Kelly, you are a blackguard guard and, uh, you know, whatever, right? An yeah, old-timey yeah.
1: insult. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Let if me I, I'm gonna look up uh nineteenth century American insults for the Irish. I'll yeah. be right back. Just kidding. You
0: good. son of the a internet bitch,
1: Kraut, yeah.
2: couchman, you <laughs> goddamn right. That, That's right. All that stuff. What I'm doing is I'm literally devaluing your currency. Mm-hmm. If I issue if I issue that those insults and say he's a he's a whoremonger and a mm-hmm. profligate and a blackguard, People Hmm. are like, I don't know about his currency. This is why there were duels in the southern United States. Men didn't fight for their honor. They fought for their cash.
0: They fought
2: for the worth of their notes. Right? That This is is always missed. Like, oh, southern men and their honor. Yeah, southern men have honor. Of course, you're fighting for your ability to write an IOU and have accepted a discharge, does right? Yeah, and
0: turn that into like credit score or something. Right, right, right. 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 Thank thank
1: God we have no uh, social credit system in the United States. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So,
2: so how do you, you know, currency is really interesting because if you make a coin, it has to have the backing of something, an institution, a government right? So that specie or that note will be rendered current in the markets where men barter in order to be currency. And currency is a note that must be accepted. Legal tender means a bill has to be accepted by vendors. If you walk into a place and they say no cash taken, you can say, fuck yourself. This is the United States under US law. You are required to
1: take this bill to discharge a debt. You just son of a bitch, black garden fucker. I'm gonna pay (laughs) I'm paying cash for this first edition copy of it. Legal (laughs) (laughs) fucking tender. Yeah. This
2: isn't tender the app. This is legal tender
1: (laughs) the tender. Uh Okay, so so
2: the that was a
1: hell of a footnote.
3: Yeah.
2: Thank you. The judge is in shadowing this counterfeiter, this cold forger mm-hmm. in the kid's dream, right? And this man, man is working with hammer and dies with the tools of his trade. Gravers and burns are more tools that, that coiners will use to make coins.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And the narrator says, you know, perhaps he's an exile from men's fires and he's hammering out like his own conjectural destiny. Some coinage for a dawn that would not be. It's this false moneyer with his gravers and burns who seeks favor with the judge. Mm. And he, the the false moneyer, the counterfeiter, this this forger, is at contriving from cold slag, the cold metal, a face that will pass. Right, just like we have Washington's face on a coin or Lincoln's face on a coin or Grant's, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. You got to find a face that will pass, an mm. image that will render this residual species current in the markets where this, where of this is the judge, judge. The judge is the judge of representation, the judge is the judge. Of the process by which the counterfeit replaces the real.
3: Holy so the just
2: judge. as the judge right. collapses a piece of Spanish armor and destroys it, just as he wipes out the 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 drawings, the etchings by the native people, all we have is the judge's copy.
1: All what? we have is he, the, the judge. The judge is the narrator, of course. Well, not the narrator. I don't think, I think it's a little different, right? So here's here's okay. the distinction. Wait, the real quick, hang on, you're on a roll. The judge, what does the judge do to that fellow? He grabs him by the head in the bar right. fight and until his head is misshapen. So That's that right. comes back to the coin, doesn't it? A head that yeah, will yeah, pass. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah,
2: face that will pass. Like, you know, what hmm. kind of face can this counterfeiter put on this coin to fool people, right? The judge who who destroys the real and replaces it with simulacrum with simulation, with a counterfeit. And it counterfeits mm. so real, no one can tell the difference. I mean, counterfeiting is very interesting. And okay. during the Civil War, Confederate counterfeiters were captured because the notes they printed were too good.
0: <laughs> they were better than the real.
2: Currency, Confederate currency was so kicked in mm. and so fake-looking, mm. the real shit looked fake, but the counterfeit mm. shit looked real. Wow. Well, you can't exist in a world like that. You have to hang those motherfuckers. Right. 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 You can. You man, if you start fucking with people's money, right? Yeah. It's one thing yeah.
1: Americans will not. I listen. Them. Listen. But, I but, live in I live in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, and I don't want to get political, but the the business with uh, Mister Floyd kicked off over a counterfeit bill.
2: It did. That is True. an amazing thing, right? So this is something. That is still policed today.
0: Oh yeah, by still the Secret policed. Service, no less. By, by an Secret entire Service. different, yeah, int- weirdly. But there, there is something here, and, and this is this is this is like fresh. To, this is, to some degree, fresh territory for me. There is something about I in the the last. I guess it's the epilogue. I don't think it's actually called the epilogue. There is the in the. Encroachment of modernity with the fence posts, and we're 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 coming into a new age of uh, 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 industrialism. And there is something about now. I'm starting to think like something about the judge. The world is going to become fake from here on out. We're going to transverse past the desert of the real into a world of of manufacture and artifice and synthesis. And the judge is going to be, uh, what does he call himself? Suzerain. Cesar- I don't yeah. know how to pronounce it. He's going earth. to be, he's like, so, we're getting into like Baudrillard territory. Like, the whole world is going to be fake, but if you can establish something that can you can get a foothold on in that fakeness, you can be king in some way. This is fast, this is amazing. Well, and-
2: I'm always asking Americans, God, I'm a, I am love American history from 76, 1776 to 1876, those 100 years are what I'm interested in. I don't care what happens after that. I'm not interested <laughs> in any politician after Grant. In, 17, <laughs> in 1876, barbed wire was run, the West was fenced off, the West is over, the Comanche are forced onto the reservations, the Sioux go into the reservations, Wild Bill Hickok is shot, it's mm-hmm. all fucking over. It's mm-hmm. over.
3: Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm.
2: Everything after 1876 doesn't take place. We're all representations of the judge for all I care. But <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. I ask people, have you, oh, do you uh do you like Westerns? Ah, oh, I fucking love unforgiven. I love this, I love yeah. that. It's like you ever have you read a history? Have you read uh Ferenbach's Lone Star, History of Texas? No. <laughs> have you read a history of the American Southwest? No. Have you ever mm-hmm. read a history of Arizona or Mexico in the 19th century? Hell no. no. I was like, have you read Blood Meridian? Hell yeah! yeah. Yeah. McCarthy has taken the history of the Southwest and he's created a counterfeit.
3: <laughs>
2: so you have to ask if you're yeah. holding this book, if you have this book and if you've read this book and love this book, have you read a history of the American Southwest? Have you read a history of the pursuit of the Apache and the annihilation of the Comanche and then, have you read, or have you read McCarthy's counterfeit? Right. And uh. the judge is the is the one who judges whether the, the thing can pass, whether the counterfeit can pass as real currency. So people, I've had students at this point go, oh, Horvath McCarthy is the judge. No, 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 no. Horvath McCarthy is the cold forger. Cormac McCarthy Mm -hmm. is the counterfeiter in this analogy. Mm -hmm. He's a blind man hammering, 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 trying to please the judge, Mm -hmm. seeking favor with the judge, Mm -hmm. trying to create a counterfeit that can be passed as
1: the real. Yeah, damn. Who is the narrator? Well,
2: there's certain things we can say about him, right? He is a man not of our world. And by our world, I mean 1985 world. He is a man of that world.
3: Mm. He's a
2: man who uses racial slurs. Not I'm not talking about the, the slurs that are in the dialogue. I'm talking about he will use it in the text and in the headnotes. Yeah. And in the headnotes. He so a lot of people think, well, a first-person narrator, I get my I can get my head around how Humbert Humbert or Merceau. Or um, Holden Caulfield is not the same as as their authors, right? I can wrap my head around that. But if you use third person, there's this tendency of people to think, oh, a third person narrator is the author. Well, no, not at all. The third person narrator is a constructed voice, just as a first person is. Mm -hmm. All third person narrators are actually first person. They just don't say I, right? Yes, Yes,
1: but but, but this narrator does on, on page one. I looked for blackness holes in the heaven.
0: It does not happen frequently after that. No, I think that might be the only time that but, is that, but that, that but but that, plays, that, that t- talks right into Aaron's uh, what the point Aaron's making is that any third person voice is a constructed voice. I mean, I write in third person and, you know, not that I'm Cormac McCarthy, but yes, it's a made up. It's a perspective that is not mine, but sort of is right there. It's,
1: yeah, is I mean, it would is is it ki- is it the kid or is it the father or is it no? Okay, all I right. Don't well, think so. I, I, I yeah. want to know what Aaron
0: thinks.
2: If you are talking about night of your birth, thirty three. The Leonids, they were called. God, how the stars did fall.
1: That's the father.
0: That that's ah, birth, ah right? I
1: see. Okay, yeah, right. right. So that's dialogue. Okay, right. Uh, all start, right. Yeah,
2: it's weird because like that's where McCarthy's refusal to use quotation marks.
1: Uh, no of course no it's fine i I appreciate you helping me with my reading of it so uh yeah he i see of course i mean it's set up he quotes from poets and so the the drunken father is telling the son of his the night of his birth interesting
2: Mm -hmm. the the narrow i think we get to something really important there. the narrator could very well be a person like the kid's father, a school teacher, someone who is of this world and is watching these men and almost never, almost never enters the heads of the characters, almost never uses the word feel or thought, Mm -hmm. right? The the interior dimension is 98% absent. There are a few instances toward the end of the book, the last act, where you'll have you have little shadings with the kid who becomes the man. But for the most part, there is no internality. We are the narrator is watching these men and reporting what these guys do and the physical sensations. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. I Well, and tell me, tell me if this this makes any sense. And I don't know if I've ever articulated this. My feeling is that the narrator Though it you could perhaps embody it isn't a character that's participating in the story but is the same narrator of, uh, the Johnny Appleseed story, and the any number of American legends. Who's the narrator of those? Right. It's right. sort of all right. of us, kind of in a way, yeah. right? That's the way that I think of it. It's it's and and does that call into question whether this stuff actually happened? Absolutely. <laughs> Right, right.
2: Well, you know, I think it's it's important to to see. I, I I hate to emphasize this point again. I'm doing it for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it was so important for me to understand. Oh, this is not narrated from 1985 looking back. It's not that McCarthy created a narrator who looks back at this time from the distance of more than a hundred years. McCarthy mm-hmm. creates a narrator who from the very first sentence is present at, you know, in the spirit of, of narration as if he's hovering Mm -hmm. and commands, see the child. Mm -hmm. He is pale and thin, right? That, so he is of this world of these people. He doesn't make many judgments, but he makes some, he makes some, when there's, a dis-
0: there, there's a distinct one I remember where they're um, they're camping out and there are bats and it just says they were afraid. And that one really rings for me. There, there's a few others, but that's the one that really like um, that. Is, it's powerful. He, McCarthy from is saving up for these that's handful right. of moments. That's right. Yeah. To get the right. absolute most out of them that he, that he possibly can.
2: There's a passage where Glanton performs what's basically a mercy killing, which is strange. He kills a woman in a park, mm-hmm. right? He shoots her. And but before he does that, he does something very un-Glanton. He distracts her. He 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 like gets her attention and he points and when she turns, he shoots her. And and what the narrator says is the explosion filled all that sad little park. Well, mm-hmm. sad there's nothing in, in the narrator's. The narrator doesn't usually make comments like that. The narrator doesn't tell us something sad. We fucking know the whole book. <laughs> <laughs> we know it. Yeah. yeah, this is fucking bloody as fuck, and people are yeah. losing it, right? So yeah. the narrator really um, doesn't often do that, right? And so you have little things like that. If you have evaluations, they come from the characters.
3: Right. It's right, something,
2: right. I mean, it taught me studying this book as someone trying to write fiction in my mid 20s taught me how to begin to create characters on the page that could be known to a reader purely through what could be dramatized, right? right? Through what they say, what they do, their appearance, right? And and to really locate that drama in the physical and the noble. Now, of course, one of the great things about fiction is that you can enter as a writer, you can enter that internal interior space yeah. and, you know, and do it beautifully and all this other stuff. But I felt like when I was starting, I wouldn't say anyone else has to be this way. I wanted to capture the external drama first. I, I felt like I had to nail that.
0: Um And I card- mean, I'm exactly with you. This is the big thing I learned from McCarthy was was uh, dramatic third person. And not that I would go as hardcore or even try to go as hardcore as I am about keeping outside of the character's head. But what it drove home to me was like, if you're going to go into the character's head, it better be fucking worth it that's right right. like you can't just go in there and say well he then he thought this thing that you could have dramatized it better you better do something that can't be done in cinema that can't be done in 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 any other art form except for fiction
2: well i I agree with that and and kevin as a dramatist as a stage dramatist um there are ways of cheating that and the chorus is a way of cheating that Mm -hmm. right but for the most part I mean, if we're in the audience, we're watching a play, we know what's going on because we see the those characters on stage doing things and saying things, right? We see the exterior and the external. We're not, gra- for the most part, we're not granted access to their minds unless you do the soliloquy. Right. Unless you do the chorus. I mean, you can, it's not cheating, but you can do
0: something else. There are devices though. you can make characters talk to them. You know, there are ways of getting, doing
2: mm-hmm. it, but... That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, who <laughs> is the narrator? Well, yeah, <laughs> we don't know exactly, but there are things we can say. There are things we do know. We know who it's not. We know it's not a person of 1980s. We know it's not a, a person. is not someone who entered the 20th century. Right. And this is a person that's close to these events.
0: Yeah. And you know, that's based on diction, if nothing else. Yeah.
2: Yes. term. Yes. Yeah. Since he were the syntax, the diction, though, of course, mm-hmm. of course, because he's McCarthy, he has learned all the lessons of modernism, all the lessons of irony. And and I mean, I, people talk about it as a postmodern Western. I mean, sometimes those terms don't make a lot of sense to me. They don't seem particularly useful. I I see McCarthy as as carrying on the project of modernism. He he seems to have learned all his lessons. Yeah. Post, Melville, and Twain from Hemingway and Faulkner um, and T.S. Eliot. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. Big time.
0: Yeah. that I, I haven't really heard it. Too many people try to describe it as a postmodern we- Western. I do agree with you that it's not a super useful um, way of looking at it. Um, you know, because partially because every time I hear somebody actually lay out what postmodernism is, as a literary style. It's either very narrow and applicable to, you know, some dozens of writers or it's they're talking about something that people have been doing for hundreds of years. It's like they'll, they'll describe something and be like, yeah, but that's in Don Quixote. So what do you like? What do you mean postmodern? That's right. right? Well, yeah, that's
2: well, that, that. I mean, the novel starts. In that metafictional space. And mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it the, does the early 17th century. So, yeah, yeah. The meta. And then almost all the first English novels after Robinson Crusoe, Maul Flanders, like Tom, uh, Tom Jones and
0: Tristram Shandy.
2: They're highly metafictional,
0: right? highly right.
2: metafictional, yeah. self referential yeah.
0: yeah, it's almost, it gets to a point, well, this is, a, it almost gets to the point where the more postmodern thing would to do would be to not be metafictional.
3: Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. right. Well, yeah. I'm
0: just going to tell a story straight. That's bizarre. Yeah, (laughs) I don't think McCarthy shares
2: the ideological. I mean, I would say I know he doesn't. I don't think he shares the ideological values of people like John Barth, um, of of some of the metafictionists and postmodern writers of the nineteen seventies. I think he sets himself very far Mm -hmm. apart from that. And, And I've said this before. Um, I, I think that this is, for me, it's not really, it's inarguable. Dave McCarthy's a Catholic writer. He's not Catholic in the sense of a Graham Greene. He's mm-hmm. not Catholic in the sense of a Flannery O'Connor, who he adored, by the way. Mm-hmm. But he was raised Catholic. Uh, all of his training is Catholic. His early schooling is Catholic. And his moral worldview is entirely Catholic. Mm-hmm. The, the world of Blood Meridian is a world of transgression. It's a world of falling from grace. It's a world of men existing outside the, the, the light of God and the light of communion, right? It, it, when it describes various things that we've talked about, it describes them as being travesties of mass, you know, the headless Christ circling past the judge like communicants, all of these things, the ex-priest, Um Mm-hmm. Tobin right so I, I think McCarthy I don't think you escape Catholicism you can say I'm no longer a practicing Catholic right I, I think that stuff is deep in McCarthy's
0: work so so what do you make of this excuse me this this Gnostic notion is this sort of like because the way because I, I agree with you and what I well yeah what do you make of all this I mean there's been an entire book and and a number of articles written about the Gnostic theology of blood meridian. How do you square that with this? Right. So
2: there's the faith that we come from or no faith, right? Mm-hmm. The faith that we come from. And then there's the thing that we discover, or maybe the thing we want to believe. I believe that McCarthy is deeply invested in, in some sort of Gnostic cosmology in this book. I believe it's all there. Um, I believe it's there. It's definitely there. It's 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 one layer of meaning amongst many layers of meaning, right? Mm-hmm. But this mm-hmm. McCarthy wasn't born into Gnosticism. He was born no. into the Roman Catholic Church,
3: right. right?
2: Right. So there's also all of that, and all the churches, and all the priests, and all the sure. the the liturgical language, and all of that, right? right? So, so I I would say yeah, there is a Gnostic. Uh, there are these Gnostic impulses, and McCarthy uses that to achieve certain things, but he also uses, I mean, if you don't have an idea of sin and transgression, it's very hard to have a book like this. That's true. We know, we know these men aren't doing the right thing. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And we also know, like, we don't need to be told they're sinning. We understand in this world, they're sinners, they're outcasts, they're desperados. They're, Mm -hmm. I mean, they are, they're outlawed. Right. And, and, you know, and there's all know I mean, the narrator talks about, you know, men who, you know, run from the fires of God and, you know, outside the fires of men and, you know, where they've gone to hide from God and all that kind of stuff. Right. And so these are the men we're dealing with. We're dealing with the fallen. We're dealing with the sinners. But what's postulated are these other people. I would say the multi ethnic cowboys who give the kid food and a knife and who the oh, yeah. kid slander. He slanders them to Captain White and tells Captain White, they robbed me, and they took everything but my knife. He converts their kindness to cruelty. Mm. There's, there's Sarah Borgennis, who tries to take care of the character of the idiot, right? All the compassion and the person who saved the, kid, the kid's life twice. A woman saves him at the beginning when she cares for him after he's shot, and then bails the on new- her. The, yeah, the native people saved the kid and Tobin at the end in the desert. And the narrator even says, if I forget the name uh, of that tribe, it says the name of the tribe. If these people had not have found them, they would have died.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Right? So in, in this world, the people that are doing acts of mercy and good are always women and um, people of color. Interesting. That's that all through. That's all through the book.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Now,
2: yeah. I, I don't think McCarthy's saying that only women and people of color are they're the only moral folks, but mm-hmm. he is showing he is showing a standard of morality and humanity against which Glanton, the rough Glanton, mm-hmm. and and Toadvine and Bathcat and Granny yeah. Rat. I mean, can yeah. you? Can you take a child into a church and offer him under the priest and say, "I want to, I want to baptize my child, and his name shall be Granny Wrath. Right? No, <laughs> these are these are men. They're, they're fucked up, man. They're no, missing. yeah, they're
0: they're outsiders. They're yeah, they're yeah. they're
2: branded.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, following on this this idea
1: of the Catholicism in McCarthy and. This novel is something I've been meaning to say for a second, which is that if you're if the book is in 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 large part about counterfeiting, the the central irony or I'm not irony anxiety the central fear, uh, which is also the central article of faith in the Catholic Church, is that that wafer, that coin shaped object. Which is referenced many, many, many times mm-hmm. uh the mass and, and communion and all the rest throughout this novel, at key moments, it's alluded to, is not a counterfeit. It's yeah, it's real. It it has been created. That's just a central thing. So if you're if this novel is talking about representation and anxiety and what truly is, and I was reading too that the Gnostics would argue that though the Eucharist, they were, you know, the Cathars anyway, were, did not believe in the Eucharistic miracle mm-hmm. or what or whatnot. So, just right. another little note uh, about like what is the thing like, and and you have to in Catholicism, you really have to truly believe the thing is 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 not what you're it, seeing with your this, eyes.
0: This is so interesting. This whole conversation, Kevin, this makes hmm. me realize that so far. The companion episode that we've already done to this is oddly enough the Hieronymus Bosch episode. This, Bosch, yeah, yeah, very not a, not what I would have expected necessarily going into this, but there is a Boschian undercurrent because there's there's both reaffirmation and second guess and um and what what would be the word an inversion, but also a reification of of faith going on in this book it it it, there's a within blood meridian there's an argument to be a catholic and to to um depending on how you read it i think a a non a less careful reading might be to um throw all that to the wind The, the world is a you know it's all nihilistic nothing really means anything anyway right
1: yeah yeah it's this book if this book doesn't inspire you to get to church, uh, I don't know. <laughs> like maybe
0: you know, I read this and I go, "Oof, yeah." I it makes go me want to go rob some banks, Kevin. Uh, okay, well you no, can I'm do just both. Kidding. I'm You're just an kidding. American. I'm just kidding. You're an American, Brad. <laughs> it's a free country. <laughs> it's a free
1: goddamn country that is blood-soaked, <laughs> gnostic, horrifying, uh, but also endlessly entertaining. America is what a is, fucking carnival.
2: For me, hmm. I mean, I find. I'm not horrified by the violence because I don't feel the violence in this book. It feels like, or at, or at the very least, the representation of violence in this book doesn't hit me like the representation of violence in other books or other films. I don't feel it emotionally. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I I encounter it as something else and usually as some sort of energy. Mm. I, I mean, I feel like McCarthy is not, he's not saying the violence is good. He's not portraying the violence is good. He's, mm-hmm. he's portraying the violence as unequivocal. Right. Right. And, and a main, and because of the epig- epigraphs, a mainstay of human affairs. This is yeah. just this is the way people are Yeah. like men are like this.
1: And yeah, have been and, like this. Yeah. What's the third epigraph talking about scalping having existed in Ethiopia hundreds of thousands of years ago? Yeah. Yep. yeah. Which and this, boy.
2: And, and it's nothing so. Changes, big, baby. Nothing changes,
1: Kevin. Nothing changes, baby.
2: The, the judge lecturing these men, these men who are carrying out extrajudicial killings for money, mm-hmm. right? The judge lectures them about war and they reject it. They don't want to believe. And David Brown, the worst sinner amongst them, right? He tells the judge when the judge says "War is God," Brown says, "You're mad, Holden. Mad at last.
0: Mm. You're crazy, right?" And, and it, the
2: judge's it, like, "I'm honoring your trade, motherfucker."
0: Right. Right. But David Brown, it? David Brown knows he's sinning. That's the difference, right? It's right. like, I'm doing this, but it is a transgression, and I'm aware of that, but I'm doing it anyway. You
2: can't have yeah. that without Catholicism. You right. can't right. have that doubleness without Catholicism. Right. David right. Brown and the other members are offended by the suggestion that they're not sinning.
3: No, no
2: we lie outside the grace of God. We are right. committing transgressions. The judge right. says, no, you're not. You're involved in right. something more important.
3: Oof.
1: Oh yeah! Well, boys, what are, we, <laughs> what are we? What are we going to talk about? On the afterdark for Patreon, Patreon.com/slash Art of Dark Pod. As you can tell, if you're new to this podcast, this is not the core of what we do. The core no. of what we do are biographical profiles of dead artists. We always wait in a, y- a year and a day before covering anyone, so we have not had cause or time to cover the great Cormac McCarthy yet. However. Yeah we are breaking our own rules because of the the weight and the import of this and also Aaron's expertise and frankly urgency at getting out some media some I guess content about this very very important book that means a lot. I know to all of us, uh, Aaron. What? Where is your Substack for people who can't get enough of the Gwyn? If you're not Gwyned out, you by need now, more Gwyn. If you if you just if you're not already sick to death of me,
2: uh, my my Substack is bloodmeridian.substack, Right. So I I have the, the I mean they've it's, it's become a blood stack blood stack, blood stack.
3: <laughs> bloodstack.com. You know, blood, yeah, it's nice. A substack <laughs>
2: yeah 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 so my uh yeah subscribe to my blood stack uh i'm on twitter at american Quinn, gwyn i always post new episodes of my Substack. there is stuff now that i've got a free tier there's shit you can look at if you're interested um and see if it's right for you and then there's a paid tier if you want more
1: yeah right And and aaron is a fine novelist in his own right you can find his stuff wherever you would find such things uh he's also going to be back for our book club which we do for patreon and as i said at the beginning of this episode we had blood meridian planned prior to cormac passing away that's going to be in december aaron will be there with us so let's just say This is like uh, christmas early this is christmas (laughs) in july for people uh who were waiting for the blood meridian book club event it's a prelude we're gonna do more we're gonna be thinking about blood meridian for the rest of our goddamn lives i'm sure (laughs) uh i'm actually pleased that i got ahead of reading it it felt like it had It it had been too long since I had read it. Brad, what do you want to do to close this out before we come back and go for another minimum half hour, probably an hour for this very special darkest of all dark rooms?
0: Well, I think, you know, I, I think. What if I just pick a random passage? Okay. Yeah. Use it, use,
1: it, use it like divination. Oh, and by the way, on the after dark, I'm going to ask you about the tarot
0: scene. Yeah. Oh, I want to talk about the tarot cards. Okay. We're going to talk about tarot in the in blood Meridian, and we're also just going to talk a little bit generally about how. What could Cormac McCarthy be published now if he was starting out now, could Blood Meridian exist now if it was coming out now? How does this how have things changed? How are they the same? Uh, Maybe he would be at a better advantage. Who knows? But I want to get everybody. All three of us have had different relationships with that world. And I'm curious what you guys think. Um, And we're going to talk about tarot because the tarot features prominently in Blood Meridian. We haven't even talked about it.
1: Last thing I'm going to say, patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. If you can't chuck five American dollars or the equivalent of five American dollars at this podcast, if you don't think it's worth it, if you're a frequent listener, you've listened to three, five, ten core episodes, and you're not chucking a buck, I don't know what to tell you this thing does not make itself these guests <laughs> do not book themselves although aaron uh aaron has an open door he'll come he'll come on whenever he wants to come on what? you seriously have got to be supporting shows like this if you want them to continue to exist brad and i are both generous guys brad's yeah. a father i'm a father we're both artists we are creative people we got a lot going on on in our lives if you want to see art of darkness continue for another year, another two years, another five years, another 10 years, get out your credit card, get on Patreon, show support. I'm kind of done fucking around with it. Like, I love you if you listen. I pre- We appreciate you. But that material support goes a long way. And hopefully you think of us as a little bit more than just another entertaining show that you maybe tune into once in a while. And I, and I hope an episode like this really showcases what, what it is we're trying to do. Yeah, Aaron.
2: If you're not willing to lay cash on the barrel head, you better be at contriving from cold slag, brute in the crucible, a face that will pass something that will render you better counterfeit some shit and you better (laughs) make it real and you better (laughs) sing it to my boys.
0: I love it. I love it. We're going to close with this. We're going to close with this passage that I pulled. I just flipped through to found the first passage that I had outlined. They rode on into the darkness, and the moon-blanched waste lay before them cold and pale, and the moon sat in a ring overhead, and in that ring lay a mock moon with its own cold gray and knacker seas. They made camp on a low bench of land where walls of dry aggregate marked an old river course, and they struck up a fire about which they sat in silence, the eyes of the dog and of the idiot and certain other men glowing red as coals in their heads where they turned. The flames sawed and the wind and the embers paled and deepened and paled and deepened like the bloodbeat of some living thing eviscerate upon the ground before them. And they watched the fire which does contain within it something of men themselves in as much as they are less without it and are divided from their origins and are exiles. For each fire is all fires, the first fire and the last ever to be. All right, that's it. Thank you, Aaron, for your time. This was amazing thank Good you luck. audience for listening along with us um come we'll be back on the after dark